Welcome to Nanny Og's Book Club, a Discworld podcast. Join us as we read through all 41 of the fantastical and outrageous Discworld novels. I'm Tessa. And I'm Nigel. This is episode 24, The Fifth Elephant. Nigel, I have a surprise for you. Oh, I like, well, I don't know whether I like surprises. I have my hat! Yes! The meeting of the Ninyog Book Club Hat Club commences. I remembered from last time. Are you going to continue holding your headphones like that for the duration of the thing? No, I'm not. I'm, hold on, let me see if I can figure out how to fit it over my headphones. Yeah, because this hat is rather precariously balanced. That's tight on the old skull. Can we take a screenshot of this to Twitter? Yes. Dear listeners, since podcasting is a visual medium, I am now balancing a black hat on top of my headphones. It also looks kind of like a Children of the Corn hat. I know it does, doesn't it? Yeah, just because like I can't see the length of it, so it's kind of truncated in two. Like, if, you tr- if you turn to your side profile for a second. Yes. All, all doubts of child corn cult have been resolved. <laughs> yes. I hope my hat doesn't fall off, actually, while we're doing this. All right, let's talk about The Fifth Elephant. Published in 1999, The Fifth Elephant is the 24th Discworld novel and the fifth City Watch book. This was the only Discworld book to come out in 1999, which doesn't really surprise me because it's a very long one. It's longer, I think, than any of the ones we've read so far. My copy is 466 pages. Not sure how long yours is, but mine is definitely at least 20 pages longer than Carpe Juggalum. To me, this indicates that Pratchett was starting to move into a different direction and focus with these books instead of producing three a year, which he would do. He does have three that come out in 2003 that come out in 2001, but they're much bigger. They're much more introspective. And so you can see that he's starting to slow down in terms of the volume of his work. Which is kind of sad, but also like, I don't know, like we've hit the halfway point and we're at like 2000, we're, we're like, we're nearly at 2000 and I know Sir Terry passed in 2014, so we still have like another 20-ish books to come over a span of, four, yeah, because 14 years, because right, Wintersmith, wasn't it? That was the last one, it was published posthumously. The Shepherd's Crown is the last one published pro- posthumously. Oh, The Shepherd's Crown. I was like, it's one of them. It is one of the Tiffany Aching books. You are absolutely correct. So, yeah, it's just interesting to me that we're starting to get longer books. And to my mind, even though I do love a lot of the ones that have come before, these books are starting to be a little bit more literary is the wrong term, but they're starting to become more about the characters and the ruminations on certain ideas than they are about the parody, even though there's still a lot of parody. I'm just interested Mm. as we keep reading for you to think about like the shift between the 80s and the 90s Discworld and then this late 90s, 2000s Discworld and kind of see what you think about how these books change over time. There are no adaptations of this novel that I can find, but I will tell you, Nigel, it is one of my personal all-time favorite Discworld books, definitely in my top three, which is ironic because The Fifth Element, which this title is satirizing, is one of my favorite movies. So I think that that's hilarious that one of my favorite Discworld books is also 
one of my favorite films. Did you see The Fifth Element? Take a guess. No. I'm going to say no. You haven't seen it. Correct. You haven't seen Lulu Dallas Multipass? Oh, my I God. I don't know what that is. Uh, it's it's my Twitter banner. It is literally my Twitter banner. It is a screenshot of a scene okay, from The Fifth on. Element. The scene that I just quoted. Going on to Twitter, and I'm going to at Suela Tessa. That's Suela spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. Tessa. Thank you, Nigel. Hmm. Oh. Bruce Willis. Yep. I knew he was in that film, definitely. Yeah. Multipass. I do see that. So, is her name Lilu? Her name is Lilu. She's got nice orange hair. Yes, I love her hair, and I love her outfits, too. But they're pretending to be a married couple, and so his last name is Dallas. And so when she holds her, her ID, she says, Lilu Dallas Multipass. It's <laughs> it's great. It I, I highly recommend it. I know a lot of people don't like Luc Besson for good reason as a director, but I do think The Fifth Element is one of his best works. I didn't even make that connection, though. Normally, I'm quite savvy with what the... Uh, like what the title is referencing. Ah, yeah. You know, because like, like, like Men at Arms is about armaments. Like the Light Fantastic, Carpe Jogulum. You know, like they're all like a specific thing. And I was just like, elephant, elephant. There's four of them that hold up the Discworld, and then there's another one. And my brain went no further than that. I mean, if you didn't know about the fifth element, it would be very easy to miss this Well, I reference. know it was a thing. Right, but if it's not like something you think about a lot, I feel like it would just be very easy to just put this into the mythology of the Discworld like you did and not move any further with it. And I have to say there's not really a lot of ties between this film and the book. The title seems to be more of a pun than anything else, but it just it made me happy. It made me think about one of my favorite movies. So, you know. What is the point of the fifth elephant even in the book? I was struggling to, like, figure that out for most of the book. It did not help that I kept falling asleep while reading it. Not a mark of the book itself. I was, like... I feel like I've mentioned it on this show or some other show. I love politics in fantasy. Even even kind of, like, urban fantasy, but where it's like, this is magic politics. One of the things I really liked about Elden Ring and Game of Thrones, although the new Game of Thrones show, I don't care about the politics. It's all really boring. The only thing I care about is the pirate dude who feeds people to crabs. <laughs> I haven't seen it, so all of this is just, I just get all this information. I'm like, cool, that's a show. Game of Thrones broke my heart once. I'm not letting it do it again. I don't know. I was just, like, exhausted from work, and I would come home, and then I would try and read this book. And I was like, yeah, Terry Pratchett. Yeah, the City Watch. And then my brain was like, okay, it is nap time now. <laughs> I'm like a person who famously used to never take naps. And now work has just got me so exhausted. Naps are the best. Come to the dark side of the naps. No, I, I wake up at six in the morning and I go to bed at midnight and then I have six government mandated hours of rest. <laughs> <laughs> no, naps are great. They're, we're supposed to rest as human beings. If I could make a deal with Lord Morpheus to, like, never sleep again, but, like, like make a deal, not be cursed with, like, eternal waking or something like um, the Burgess. I was about to say, that's probably not a great wish because of side effects. <laughs> no, but, like, in the same way that Hobgadling's deal works, where, like, yeah, he mm. can starve, like, like during the, the famine in England, but he won't die. Like, I would like to just not have to need sleep so I can just get shit done. I can just be like 24-7 working on shit. You're a busy person. 
I'm a busy person. I do have to tell you that, as I tell my students, I can't read in bed because bed is where I sleep. And so if I try to read in bed, I I fall asleep usually with the book on my face or near my face. So I've <laughs> definitely done that with a Terry Pratchett book or two in my time. And that is not a marker of quality. Like you said, it's just that's how my brain works. But before we get into the book, quick summary. Commander Vimes is dismayed to find himself sent on a diplomatic mission to Uberwald in his new role as the Duke of Ankh. He is outside his jurisdiction in a country where the lore rules and the strongest prey on the weak. But the new low king of the dwarves is being crowned and Ankh Morpork needs Uberwald resources, especially fat. Things start going awry when a dwarven artifact is stolen, Angua disappears to deal with family matters, and Carrot resigns from the watch. Vimes can find crimes anywhere, and it looks like this time, it's politics. Nigel, what were your first thoughts on this novel? Don't spare my feelings. You don't have to like it just because it's one of my favorites. I was unsure of this book's position in relation to Jingo. Not chronologically, but sort of thematically in how the Discworld and Sam Vimes handles politics. Especially with, like, war brewing with the Clatchians in Jingo and how that's handled and then there's so much of the watch books now that like or like he's in the nobility via marriage that like he has these duties to perform and they're just kind of like well you go and deal with them and now he's like well you're a diplomat now go go do that and I was like I don't I'm not sure how like officially government sanctioned essentially subterfuge will work I mean, at the end of Jingo, he is given the dukeship by Vetinari. So I think the the theme here is, well, you're a duke now, and we send dukes on diplomatic missions. I mean, it's all a way for Vetinari to still pull his strings and to pull strings of other people. Mm. But the excuse seems to be that, like, well, now you're officially, officially part of it. You're not just married into it. You actually have a title that was given to you. And this is what we do. I feel like this is just adding to the, my favorite running gag of the watch books, where at the end of every single one, Vimes goes and he asks for another dartboard for the watch house. And Vetinari goes, fine, you can have your dartboard, but I'm giving you an extra title. Although this time, at the end, he has to ask the new Low King for whatever he wants, right? Where he's like, what do you want? And he's like, uh, nothing. And then Sybil negotiates the the trading agreement i i just i thought that was funny because it's usually it's veterinary but this time it was reese the low king i don't know it's going to get to the stage where like this is a thing of escalation it's the same way i feel about the making more seasons of you because like eventually joe goldberg is going to end up on the moon repeating the same plot again because he just <laughs> he's moved through every city like on earth it's going to get to the stage where and I hope this doesn't happen, but Revetinari is like, just be the patrician for a while, Vimes. <laughs> that would be such a funny plot for a Discord book if it's not a thing. Vimes has to be patrician for a week while Vetinari goes and does something. Vimes would hate that. He would hate it so much. Like Prince and the Pauper, but with Vetinari and Vimes. <laughs> now, I know it's probably not the done thing, but... In the same way that, like, there's new Poirot, James Bond, and Sherlock Holmes stories, I wonder, can there be new Discworld stories? It would be a good question. I don't know if Rihanna Pratchett has ever considered that or not, or if she sees it as, like, 
No, this she is probably it. has gotten at least one query from someone being like, "I have a thing I want to write in your father's world." Oh, I bet. Her and Rob have probably gotten like a load of questions like that. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. Okay, there's so many places we could start with this because there's so many threads to this book. I love almost all of them. There's only one thread that I'm kind of like, eh, but most of them I absolutely love. So I'm going to ask you. This is one of the hardest things to like deal with when you've just woken up from a sleep being like, what the hell is going on? Then being like, which plot line is this? Which plot line is this? Which thread am I on? How does this all work? I'll leave it up to you. Do you want to talk about the Low King plot line first? The modernity versus tradition theme, the chosen family versus blood family theme, the romantic relationships, or Uberwald as a setting. Well, sure, we'll tackle them in order, so the Low King one. Okay. This is like the plot line that's at the center of this book. We get a lot of dwarf lore, as it were, in this book. Like, we've had, like, little bits and pieces of it before through Carrot and Sherry and you know, different dwarves that we've come across. But this is where we really get the sense that not only are dwarves this loosely interconnected society, but this idea that they have a lot of very complex laws, a lot of complex lore, and that they do have like a a high king, or in this case, a low king, right? Somebody who is sort of in charge of navigating all of this. And This is where, like you said, we get a lot of the politics of the Discworld. This idea that the wrong person, Reese, was appointed the Low King instead of who everybody thought would be the Low King, this really conservative dwarf. And so there's a lot in here that we can unpack about traditional values versus modern values, the ideas about like closed societies versus open societies. It's it's very fascinating to me. Not only the amount of lore we get, but the way that it's just so different from anything I've ever read in a fantasy novel about a dwarven society. And because, like, this is the strange thing, because, like, Uberwald, like we mentioned in Carpe Jugulum, is culturally Eastern European. The vampire mythology and, like, the use of Vald, which is a Germanic word, presumably there's, like, similar words in other languages over there from like the the same root language i I just don't know but like dwarves and i feel like this is a weird thing because like now we kind of associate it with john reese davies playing gimli in lord of the rings but like dwarves seem to be culturally scottish and this is kind of taken to like a weird thing in this book because like they're in this what's essentially like transylvanian depiction of the country but the dwarves are just, like, culturally Scottish and Welsh. Like, Reese is a Welsh name. And he's from Llamados, which is where Buddy was from in soul music. So he's got that, like... Ooh-wee-oo. Yeah, they are tying him to that Welsh part of the Discworld. Yes. <laughs> the artifact that goes missing is the the Scone of Stone, which is, like, the, it's just a spoonerism of the Stone of Scone, which is, like, an artifact used to crown the kings of England. Or queens, currently a king, because the queen is dead. But, like, it's from Scotland, and it's held in Edinburgh Castle. I've actually seen it, like, a few times. You're not allowed to take pictures of it, which is weird, because it's a stone. But there is a theory that it was stolen and was replaced with a fake. Like, they have no idea. Like, people, I think monks stole it, and they have no idea whether the one they got back was the original one. 
So it's strange that there's so much, like, cultural... I don't know what word to use, because it's, like, Scottish and Welsh, but it's not, like... It's not Anglophone, and it's not British, because, like, it's not English. To kind of go off of what you're saying, it's almost like Uberwald has two different societies, and they're literally separated from each other by having one underground and the other one above ground. The one that's above ground is ruled by the vampires and the werewolves, you know, constantly kind of jockeying for different types of power. And they're represented by the Wolfgang and his werewolves and then Margolotta, who is the the vampire that we meet in this, Lady Margolotta. And then we have the dwarves who are underground. And a lot of the conservative ones never even come above ground. So it's almost like there's this complete separation between these two societies, even though they technically live in the same place. It's an interesting follow-on from Carpe Jogulum, which was about, like, trying to drag old world societies and beliefs, like, to drag them into modernity. And here now in Uberwald, you have, like, what's essentially, like, bicameral politics, but it's above ground and below ground, and one one society is, like, extremely conservative. Whereas the werewolves are kind of just dicks, and, like, Lady Margolotta is just, like, being, like, mystical. Like, she's just, she's just, like, she spends most of the book, like, just going, like, <laughs> like. <laughs> I love her so much, though. Vimes is like, what is she doing? And she's just like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> I'm just doing my thing. Yeah, that's, that's probably the funniest part of the politics, is that there's really, like, nothing deeper for, like, most of it to Lady Margalata. No, she's just there. Yeah, she's just like, all right, I'll do this. Yeah, it plays on his, like, distrust of vampires to, like, like, he's so suspicious of her because she's a vampire. Even from when he's told, like, you have to meet with these three people when you go to Uberwald. And he's like, oh, vampire. Ah, oh, they're so tricky. She's going to try and pull something on me. And then she's just like, I'm doing my own thing. Also, like, I don't drink blood. I feel like her rundown of Vimes, like, midway through the book is perfect. Like, she understands him almost as well as Vetinari does. Like, she's just like, this is who you are. This is why you don't like vampires. You distrust authority. Like, you're suspicious of, like, all these people, but you hate yourself, too. Like, she, she like, has this, like, really good understanding of him. But then she also reveals that, much like he is, like, she has a problem with a certain substance, which is blood. And she actually goes to, like... AA meetings, but for vampires who aren't drinking human blood, it's almost like against his will, he has this connection with her. Yeah, like, it has been five years now, said Lady Margolotta, and I am still taking one night at a time. One neck would always be one too many, but there are compensations. And I love how she's like, he's like, you know, does animal blood replace human blood? And she's like, like, lemonade replaces whiskey. Yeah. And that's something that I feel like Vimes would acutely understand. And because, like, as well, the consumption of blood isn't actively detrimental to the health of the person drinking it. Like, that kind of duality between, like, the compensation is that you're harming another person in that, because, like, human blood obviously would be, would be the whiskey in this scenario, whereas, like, drinking a bunch of whiskey is going to do, like, a number on your body. Well, and it really links in with Carpe Juggalum, like what Granny says at the end about like how drinking blood is really just a way of exerting power over people. And you could you could get the same substance from an animal or from like a blood pudding 
or whatever. You don't have to actually do this. So I, I liked how those two things linked together in this book. Like, it's almost like Pratchett took that and then said, okay, let's actually look at a vampire who does that and connect it with alcoholism by having her interact with Vimes in this way. Um, because now we're tackling them in reading order, like the reading, sorry, in published order instead of, what did you call it? Fire axe order? Machete order? <laughs> right. I should call it fire axe order. That would be awesome. But like now I wonder, did that like occur to him when he wrote that? That, like, when he wrote Carpe Jogulum being like, oh, well, I can actually explore this with Vimes? Because, like you said, this is the one book that he put out this year. 1999. It almost seems like he wrote Carpe Jogulum. I mean, I don't know how many books he would write at a time. He could have been working on this one while he was writing Carpe Jogulum. I don't, I don't know. But it does almost seem like in Carpe Jogulum, he introduces the idea of Uberwald and what it is and it's almost like he said I don't want to stop like I want to play in this playground a little bit more I want to examine some of these things because I do think it's interesting that these two books exist next to each other I don't want to ask because I don't want spoilers for future books it would be so intriguing to see like a meeting between the witches and like the watch but like not just Nobby and and colon like in masquerade like because i know we've come to the end of like the main witches series and we'll have the tiffany egging series later but like rinswind was entirely d distanced from everyone else in terms of main characters uh, and it was the U unseen university faculty and like the witches have in like interacted with people but like never vimes directly and i feel like there could be some really good interaction dialogue and like meditations on stuff by having like headology go against like the pure reason that vimes wants to believe in when solving crimes his instinct as it were yeah because he's like well there's a crime being committed and someone has to have committed it and there has to have been a reason for the crime being committed and then there should have been definite actions done while committing a crime Whereas that's not often the case. And this is a book that really like throws that against him and forces him to deal with like what happens if it doesn't make any sense. I really like the way this book takes Vimes out of his element. He's very much uh, that was not supposed to be a pun. That's funny. But like out of his elephant, out of his elephant. I mean, the fact is, is that we have mostly seen Vimes exist on home turf. On home turf, the only diff the only exception to that is in Jingo, where he goes to Clatch. But even in Clatch, there is still this idea that Watchmen exist and that there are rules and they are enforcement of laws, right? Because that's where you get seventy one hour Ahmed. Here in Uberwald, it's just like the watch that exists is completely like pointless. Like they follow any order, Vime says. The idea that this is a country that, lo that, like you said, it doesn't follow the rules that Vime is used to, it very much takes him out of his comfort zone, but also it takes him out of like his knowledge base, because he's used to being able to feel the, the cobbles of Ankh-Morpork under you know, the soles of his very thin boots, but... You know, this book says the cobbles in Uberwald felt wrong. They were the wrong sort of cobbles. And so we mm. get this very much like it's not really a fish out of water. It's more just like he's 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 out of his comfort zone. He's out of his element. It actually kind of reminded me of Die Hard a little bit. Not another Bruce Willis film. Right. Not the plot or the setup of Die Hard, 
But the fact that like Bruce Willis's character is in a situation that he is very much not prepared for and, Mm. you know, has to interact with this environment that he is not used to interacting in. That's what this reminded me of. Yeah. And there's been a lot in the watch books where it's like pushing Vimes to like the ethical limits of what he can do and what he's willing to do. And in this one, he like kills a man with his bare hands. He'd never yes. killed someone with his bare hands before. Truth to tell, he'd never deliberately killed at all. Right. He says, like, you know, sometimes people died, but, you know, it was mainly a case of, like, you know, falling off a roof and who lands first. Yeah. Whereas this is, like, this is survival of the fittest. And then to have that parallel with him being chased with the hunt at the end. What does he say at the end when he kills Wolfgang? Hold on. I gotta find it. Ah, my hat's falling off. This hat's going to be, like, sliding all over the place. But, like, while you're looking for that, like, the way Wolfgang calls him civilized man throughout the entire book, where you're you're going to freeze to death, civilized man, he says, where it's like, this is so... And I don't want to use inhumane or, like, inhuman to infer that, like, outside of what, what the Western notion of civilization is, is not human. But it's... Like, it's brutality confronted with civility, and the way that, like, Ankh-Morpork runs on brutality, yes, but it's a very carefully controlled brutality by way of the patrician and the guilds. Whereas this is just, like, you either live or you die by the merit of your own hands. And, like you said, these books have been very interested in how far Vimes is willing to go and what he's willing to do. And what we've seen is that Vimes is a very angry person and he's Mm. able to control that anger and let it out in useful situations. Here we get to see him completely let it out. Margolotta even says, like, you do very well with anger. You you use it when it's useful. And Sybil says that there is this person inside of Sam that she doesn't know. It's like she knows him and she believes in him and she he's a good person. He protects the weak, she says. Like she very much knows that he's a gentleman. Not a gentleman, a gentleman is what she calls him. But mm. she says that she's heard stories from other watchmen and the one that she references is the story where these men had hurt this little girl and when Vimes went to investigate, he found like her shoe inside the men's apartment. And Detritus says, like, if I wasn't there, nobody but Sam would have walked out of that apartment. And, you know, she's trying to reconcile this person to the person that she's married to. I think that this book allows us to see that person, like, fully in a way that we haven't been able to before. Because like you said, it's life or death. And so he has to let that anger out. He has to use it in ways that he hasn't been able to use it before. And I think this is something that's really explored with like how he interacts with Tantony. Is his, is that his name? Yeah. He has to come to terms with like following orders and like, a th- like the things that you're expected to do as part of your job often let down the people you're meant to be protecting. Like there's a quote at one stage where it says something like, Policing by consent is a good idea. Like, ethical policing by consent is a good idea, but you have to get the person you're policing to lie down first. But yeah, when Vimes spoke, it it was in a monotone as threatening as a spear. You were standing there in your shiny breastplate and your silly helmet, 
and your sword without a single notch in the blade and your stupid trousers and you are telling me that you let my wife be taken away by werewolves. Tantony took a step backward. It was the Baron. And you don't argue with Barons, right? You don't argue with anyone. Do you know what? I'm ashamed, ashamed to think that something like you is called a watchman. Now give me those keys. The man had gone red. You've obeyed many orders, said Vime. Don't even think about disobeying that one. Carrot has to come in and, and steady him like Detritus did at that thing, where, like, Tantony would not have survived because, like, Sybil is in danger. I mean, it turns out that Sybil is quite, like, capable of handling herself in that situation, but, like, Vimes doesn't know that. I'm sorry, Sam is, like, looking at me with my hat <laughs> right now. Just, like... <laughs> It's a hat club. She's wearing a hat, too. Sam can't come into frame if she's not wearing a hat. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I really like that you brought that up because, yeah, I just feel like this is a book that pushes Vimes to the point where that anger that's always inside of him is useful. And we get to see that side of him in a way that we haven't before. Uh, what I mentioned earlier that I found really poignant, the part when he kills Wolfgang and... It says, there were a lot of things he could say. Son of a bitch would have been a good one. Or he could say, welcome to civilization. He could have said, laugh this one off. He might have said, fetch. But he didn't, because if he had said any of those things, then he'd have known that what he had just done was murder. And, like, the idea that, like, he actually did murder someone. And he had to do it because he knew that he would never leave him and Sybil and Angua and Carrot alone, and that he would come back to kill Carrot specifically, that he he had to put him down, as he said, to Angua, which we've heard that before, right? We heard that when he was describing the last king of Ankh-Morpoint. Yeah, because you put down a wild animal. You don't murder it. He rationalizes what he does in this way, but you can tell that he still is very shocked and changed by what just happened because he talks about like i'm gonna see his eyes every night in my nightmares now like he knows that this is something that even though it had to be done he has just crossed a line that he's never crossed before there's so many like subtle things throughout this book that like point to this we're going to push him past what what is the hopkins line pitch past pitch of grief i think Yes. But, like, he punched the dwarf in the stomach. This was no time to play by the Marquis of Fantayer rules. And obviously that's, like, the Marquis of Queensbury rules for boxing. Yes. <laughs> it, it goes back to what he said in Jingo, where it's, like, the sort of duels and conflict between nobles isn't like the conflict he knew growing up in the slums as a child. Because, like, that's, like, that's kind of like this, where, where you live or you die by the strength of your own hand. And if you're not strong enough, everything you have is going to be taken away from you. Whereas, like, dukes and all them can just laugh it off in sort of the civil protected bounds of, uh, like, the Marquis of Queensbury rules, the way fencing isn't actually dangerous. It's like taking taking bloodshed and, like, making it palatable and genteel is one of the hallmarks of gentrification and, like, the the noble class coming in, where they can have their civilized forms of bloodshed. And Vimes recognizes that this is very much not civilized. Yeah. With the uh, Wolfgang thing, it, it this is a strange... It might it might seem strange at the start, but this is my... Um, Nigel references the Mountain Goats. Ooh. Recently, the Mountain Goats put out their latest studio album, Bleed Out, uh, and my favorite and John Darnielle's favorite track is a track called Hostages. 
and it's inspired by like 80s action films so it would be inspired by Die Hard but there's a lot the the course of hostages i think really like speaks to how trapped vimes is at first by not being able to operate the way he does in Ankh-Morpork pork because of like how Ubervaldian society Ubervaldan Ubervaldian society like has these strictures in place but then also the way that like Wolfgang would never have like left them alone he would have found some way to hurt them the, the course of it is we may run out of bullets we'll never run out of hostages like that threat is always going to be there absolutely what do you th- what did you think of Wolfgang and the von Uberwalds, Angua's family, because we saw a vampire family in the last book, and now we get this werewolf family who seem to be not necessarily the primary antagonist, but one of the primary antagonists. I don't know, like who who have we said has been like a really terrifying antagonist before? We've had Lord Teatime from Hogfather. He was terrifying. I feel like there's another one, Wolfgang is that kind of, like, infection of the brain thing that the leader of the dog gang, the Gus Bode, deals with, where he's, like, the difference between mad and insane. Like, he's... He's quite literally, like, hounding them in a way that, like... Because, like, this... the Big Fido. Big Fido. Sorry, I was looking up the name. Yeah. The previous hunt, like, was actually fair. You know, where you had a decent chance of outrunning the hunt and you would be compensated and you know, like it was a big thing, whereas Wolfgang like deliberately skews it just so he can kill people. And I don't know what like out of all the things in that book, that has to be like one of the most fucked up things that Wolfgang does. And this kind of ties back into like Vimes' feelings, but like the way he said he talks about the man in the black hat wasn't like fought better than Vimes. And it, where he says, he, he, he asks him, like, Vime says, fast enough. No. Well enough. Like, did he fight well enough? No. Just, like, it's not enough because he's skewed the game. Because he thinks that the strongest, that all that matters is strength. And so do, why would the strong play fair? There's a lot of that. Why would the strong play, like, if you're in a position of power, why, like, why should you have to care about anything else below you? There's even, like, mm-hmm. bits of that with Sybil. Is it Serafina? There's a great quote where it's, like, Serafina assumed that, like, Sybil would listen to everything she said, uh, all of her stupid little opinions, just because she was a lady. Like, capital L, lady. So, like, Sybil has this relationship with Serafina where they went to finishing school together, and Serafina is Wolfgang and Angua's mother, and she, like, still writes her every year for Christmas because that's the thing you do. But when she actually, like, catches up with her, she's like, oh, we weren't really that close because you're not a good person. <laughs> like, she's super speciesist and classist. She's expecting class solidarity. And Sybil's like, no. That's also a great Mountain Goat song. Um, the only, like, version you can find on Spotify is they did, like, a version of it at the Jordan Lake sessions where it's called Solidarity, solidarity Forever. And I'm just going to get the lyrics up to it because there's, uh, I want to inspire a message of, of change and uprising. That's what I want to do. I've been getting political recently. As you're pulling that up, I also want to point out that this is something Margolotta says about Vimes. You secretly suspect that you might be a class traitor. 
I thought that was a very good description of Vimes's conflict between who he married and the dukedom and his beginnings and his leanings towards, you know, protecting the lower classes. Oh, I apologize. I didn't, I did not know this. Solidarity Forever is a union anthem written by Ralph Chaplin in 1915. Sorry. Oh, you should read it anyway. I think it's great. They have taken untold millions that they never toiled to earn, but without our brain and muscle, not a single wheel can turn. We can break their haughty power, gain our freedom when we learn that the union makes us strong. Solidarity forever. Oh, solidarity forever. Solidarity forever for the union makes us strong. In our hands is placed a power greater than their hoarded gold, greater than the might of armies magnified a thousandfold. We can bring to birth a new world from the ashes of the old, for the union makes us strong. Yeah, like all the world that's owned by idle drones is ours and ours alone. We have laid the wide foundations built at Skyward Stone by Stone. It is ours not to toil in, but to master and to own. And you can definitely see it in the way that Bime struggles between his positions and the way that he sees himself. But I also think in The Fifth Elephant, we get more about intersectionality and about species yeah. than we do class. Although there is still class in Überwald because the humans are like the lower class in Überwald, which I think is very interesting. Yeah, to have human as like essentially like to be viewed as chattel, like that's 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 an interesting dynamic in fantasy books because like a lot of them are either fantasy race has a separate kingdom which is entirely divorced from the rest of the world, like the forest of Lothlorien in Lord of the Rings or the dwarven kingdom of Khazad-dûm, or they're kind of like marginalized by humans. So to have humans not the dominant species in an area is not a thing that you see a lot of in fantasy, especially at the time. But, like, as well, when you think about the whole Nobby might be the Earl of Ankh thing, he doesn't want to take it because he knows Vimes is going to go spare because he hates the nobility, but, like, Vimes is himself nobility now. And, like, that uh, that's a good conflict. That's, like, chef's kiss. Vimes is just... He gets better and better every single book. Vimes is like the best character in all of Discworld. Sorry, Death. (laughs) He has so many layers and so much conflict, both internal and external. And the way that he interacts with other characters, too. I, I really loved all the stuff in this book about how he how when a policeman goes on or a watchman goes on vacation that they find a crime. Because that's just how Watchmen work. It really reminded me of uh, Hercule Poirot books by Agatha Christie, because that's something yeah. that's often said in those books. Like the idea that like he goes on vacation and he finds a crime. That's just how it works. That I really, really liked. Can I just ask, do you think that like some like when they notice Miss Marple or Poirot going into an area, do you think do you think like so I would love it if it's like sociologically they're like, well, I have to commit a murder now because there's this famous murder detective here. Instead of, like, a murder has happened and Poirot or Miss Marple is here and now has to solve it, they're like, well, what else? When in Rome? I think that would be such a funny dynamic for a book. Like, like kind of like Hannibal, but just more comical. I have to, I have to see how they, how they solve this. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I also really like that Vimes has is following through on his promise to make the watch more diverse. We get this mentioned several times that he is very intent on bringing in ethnic minorities 
into the watch that that is mentioned several times in this book and we get a a a scene of class solidarity when Inigo Skimmer shows up and he just assumes that Sherry and Detritus are going to be in a different coach and Vimes is like no we're all going to be in the same coach together like these are my my people these are my friends rest in peace Inigo what did you think of Inigo Skimmer assassin extraordinaire he was like devilishly rakish did you guess that he was an assassin from the beginning no (laughs) it's a very very ashamed no (laughs) well did you i mean i'm just curious because like vimes immediately suspects something i thought he was like a vampire or something i thought it was going to be like vimes has to deal with a vampire who's nice to him and i know we get that later with margalada but I thought it was going to be a Nigo, um, you know, like that he was just going to be with him. Like, like, especially with that, where he assumes that Charia and Detritus are going to be in a, a separate carriage, where it's like, oh, well, vampires, they're the upper class, and of course they're going to look down on so-called lower classes. And I was like, oh, a vampire. And then I'm like, oh, no, he's just a human. Oh, and like, possibly, he, like, I have to deal with the fact that, like, if there were ever an adaptation of this book, I would be attracted to an ego. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Come on. Like, I'm also reading The Lies of Locke Lamora at the minute, and it's like, he very much would fit into that book of, like, just roguish thief, assassin extraordinaire. Were you sad that yeah. he died? But, like, they, like Vimes believes that he betrayed him, right? For for a little while. Because he's, he, he suspects everybody in this book at one point or another. But, like, I was kind of upset by that, because I was like, but he didn't. I knew in my heart that he didn't. <laughs> You're like, no, he didn't do it! Yeah, like, especially when they find the, like, when Vimes finds out that a weapon has been left in his cell, where he's like, well, they want me to break out and hurt someone with this. And then he thinks that, like, possibly could have been Inigo. And I was like, no! What did you think about that scene? Where they're in Vilnius Pass, which becomes like a running joke in the book, but they're in the Vilnius Pass and they get ambushed by bandits. Is that meant to be like like just a reference to Vilnius, the capital of Lithuania? Probably, I imagine. So like they're in the pass and they get ambushed by these bandits. And first, there's several things that happen, right? First, Detritus, we learn that Detritus still has the siege crossbow, but he's modded it out. And has now called it the Peacemaker, which is just perfect. Like, I I have no notes about this particular... It's possibly Pratchett's best pun. Oh, yes. A hundred percent. And, like, the fact that he's modded it out, uh, it just... Everything about this makes me happy. And then Inigo reveals himself to be an assassin because he jumps out of the carriage and immediately starts killing people. Kills a lot of them. And then Sybil is taken hostage and Vimes has to rescue her with Inigo's weapon, this like tiny little crossbow. What did you think about all of this? It's the most action set piece we've gotten so far in a Discworld book. And it was like genuinely like pulse pounding. This is, yeah, this is very much like, like to go back to Die Hard, this feels like, like it would take place at Nakatomi Plaza. Um, like, it has that air of desperate, uh, desperate, like, last gun showdown type thing. Last chance. Gunman. What are words? I 
what? <laughs> I fucked up that sentence spectacularly badly, and I don't even know what I was trying to say, so all of those words are just going to stay. This is going to end up being like a hyphenated like combination word that will be translated into German for a very specific feeling. Desperate last chance action gunman. <laughs> oh, you know him. He's a desperate action last chance gunman. <laughs> yeah, that guy. Yeah, yeah that staple. guy. It's a trope. I like the thing where Vimes lights the cigar and closes his eyes, which is repeated later, right? Because they're in the dark. And so he closes his eyes and lights the cigar so that their vision is disrupted while his isn't. And that's a moment out of a Jack Reacher thing. Right. Yeah. And I also like that he uses the crossbow because he has to to save Sybil. But then afterwards, he tells the Nego, if I ever find any anyone with something like this in Ankh-Morpork, it's going to be horrible for them because this is a weapon made to kill people. It's not something that you use to warn people off. I got very real Ghana vibes off of his reaction to it. Like the, the yeah, the Ghana because yeah, like you can kill someone with an axe if needs be, but you can also wave an axe in their face. You can use an axe to chop down trees. Like its primary function isn't killing people. But like th- there's a lot in this book about killing for and esp- and Car- Carpe Jogulum as well, killing and hurting people for its own sake, and how that like that's not the way obviously the things should be done. Like you should like cruelty. I don't know. Like there, there's parts of the Discworld books where it seems that like cruelty is sometimes necessary. There are some socially acceptable forms of cruelty that like this. That's what society is built on. Like obviously you got to be cruel to be kind, like Shakespeare said. But like. That shouldn't be your primary... That shouldn't be your primary goal. Vimes has shot his crossbow before. Like, he has, like, fought people before. But the idea is is that the crossbow really is supposed to be there as a deterrent, right? Like, don't do whatever it is you're about to do. But this is different, right? Like, this, this goes back to the, like, where's the line between murder and dying in a fight just by circumstance, right? So, like, I think that that's a really interesting thing between the two of them, that that, that conversation that they have. Well, just, I think that's, like, I, I don't know whether you saw it on Twitter recently, but there was, like, a video of, like, a girl's boyfriend who she had dumped, so, like, ex-boyfriend, showing up at her house to, like, like, he kept showing up to her house, and she wasn't there, and he tried to break in, and her father was, like, inside... And he had a gun and he was like, like the house was being broken into by a person who wished his daughter harm. And so he like fired the gun out at the guy. And then people were like, oh, isn't it so fucked up that like this can happen in America? And it's like, yes, but that's a different conversation to someone trying to break into your house who wishes like you or your family harm. And like that need for protection, like that's that's kind of like the the pro gun argument, you know? But like, the, like you said, there is a difference between like self-defense and like killing someone, or like that like happening as a result of it's either him or me. I just remembered who else we talked about in the Discworld as having that level of just like fucked up creepiness. It's the elves. So yeah, Tia Tia Tima, the elves, and Wolfgang. If quick rank that list, which one is the the creepiest villain? Creepiest to least creepy. The elves. Are the creepiest. 
And I think that's just because, like, they're so otherworldly. Then, like, I think Tetame, he's the least, like, creepy on that list. Well, no. Is it a list of creepy? Or is it a list of fucked up? Because if it's a list of creepy... Fucked up. Let's say fucked up. Oh, then the elves are at the bottom. The elves are at the top of the creepy list. Like, they're fucked up and creepy, but they're they're the least fucked up. Like, Wolfgang is at the top of the fucked up list for me. Then Teotime. Then the elves. But if it's a creepy list, then it's the elves at the top. And Teotime at the bottom. Okay, and Wolfgang in the middle. Okay, gotcha. What about you? No, I agree with that list. I absolutely agree. I like that you dis- I like that you differentiated, because you're right. Like, the elves are fucked up, but... They do precious little except, like, control people. Right. Although it is implied that they would like to do more, that they would do more torture if off-camera. But we don't see it the same way we see it with... Yeah, but, uh, like, man, that... Time and... That lady? Wolfgang. Lady. Lady. Oh, God, yes. So creepy! I want to adapt that book just so I can have that, like, be a thing. Because people will watch an adaptation of fantasy quicker than they'll read a fantasy series. And, like, like I know the Discworld isn't too long of books. But, like, when you go, oh, it's a 41-book series, th- th- some people switch off straight away. Right, exactly. The other thing that comes out of this is we get to see more Sybil than we yes. have. In recent books, Sybil is actually a character that has stuff to do in this book. It's it's refreshing because she, like, and this is something we've mentioned before, like, the concept of the policeman's wife, where she's always waiting at home, or, like, the war widow. But, like, she goes as part of this because it's a diplomatic mission, and she's, like, actually born nobility. She probably knows more of what she's doing than Vimes does. Exactly, like, Vimes... Vimes is her accessory in this, like, in the diplomatic world. (laughs) I like that. I like that. Yeah, a diplomatic accessory. He's he's the arm candy. Yes! (laughs) Vimes Vimes is canonically short as well, right? Like, he- I'm imagining Vimes being, like, five foot nothing. Oh, I don't know if he's that short, but I always imagined he was, like, as tall as me. I'm five five. So. Huh. I'm taller than you. Not tall. Most people are. I imagined you as being, like, nearly six foot tall. No, I am not that tall. You have the vibes of someone who's 5'11". <laughs> my my spirit is, is six foot tall, but in body I'm 5'5". Five five. Wow, so there's like a whole half a subway foot long in between estimation and reality. Yeah. Maybe you should just go around wearing, wearing a subway six six inch sub on top of your head. <laughs> just put it on side of my <laughs> yeah. head. This is makes up my my height. Yeah, with a uh, little note great. at the top that says, "This is how tall I am." Spiritually, this is how tall I am. I'm going to start saying that when people ask how tall I am. I'm going to be like, "Well, spiritually, I'm six foot." <laughs> but a lot of people I'm don't know five. how tall I am, and because like a lot of my interactions with friends happen in a room in college, like like the society room, we were all sitting down on chairs. And so it was, like, sitting around drinking tea and talking and whatever. And then I, like, did a bookshop tour once, and we were downstairs in Perry, my friend who I'm going to see. She was like, I've never seen you standing up. What the fuck? You're, like, you're so short. And I was like, hey, like, shut up. <laughs> oh, friends, am I right? Yeah, but it, it's just funny that, like, people imagine me to be tall because they've never seen me standing against anything for a point of comparison. But, 
Yeah, like, she's the one who negotiates the actual treaty which benefits Ankh Morpork, whereas Vimes is content to be like, I want nothing, therefore the country wants nothing. Like, he's the country's representative. He's... I loved that running joke. <laughs> if I if I sneezed, Ankh Morpork blows its nose. Yeah. This is Ankh Morpork walking through the snow. And because then when he actually finds the bit that's Ankh Morpork in... Uberwald, like, he doesn't realize because he, he's been told like, there's nothing of home out here. You are Ankh Morpork. There's a word, and I, I learned this as part of, like, learning about the Ir- the Anglo-Irish treaty negotiations in the 1920s, which, like, lost us the six counties, so, like, eh. But the Queen is dead, so maybe we'll get them back. How many times have I mentioned the Queen being dead this episode? I think this is the third time. Oh, cool. Directly. Yeah, how many times is how many times is it going to stay in the finished edit? I wonder. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I never know those things before I start. Yeah. Uh, so, listeners, listeners, tell me how many times it it's in the edit. But th- like, he's a plenipotentiary in the most like literal sense. Where like a plenipotentiary is just someone who goes and acts in the stead of a government. Where it's like you have the discretion to make your own decisions in this matter. And so, like, Michael Collins made the decision that, like, well, this is the best deal we can get, so we give up three seaports and we lose the six counties, but it ensures, like, peace in Ireland. Whereas, like, Sam Vimes is told, you are the country of Ankh-Morpork. You are the city-state of Ankh-Morpork. Like, just act if like that. If I cut that. my toast into soldiers, are we at <laughs> war? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He cuts his toast into soldiers, and they're like, he's mobilizing a militia. <laughs> <laughs> I loved, too, yeah, the that when he realizes that he's on Ankh Morpork soil in the embassy, like, you've committed a crime in Ankh Morpork. I thought that that was a really good way of him, like, centering himself in a world that's very He gets so unfamiliar. excited by it. He nearly, like, can't... He's like, he's so excited by it that he can't actually get to what he needs to do because he's like, oh, I've just realized. What did you think about Sybil and Vine's relationship in this book? Like, we get a lot more about them as a married couple. And I think some of the issues, like, that you mentioned before come up and are deepened in this book. Because so often in fantasy, like, Amar- or even like Jane Austen, the... Like, the marriage is like, well, this is it, they're happily married, that's the end. Which is one of the things that, like, makes Middlemarch so interesting as a book, is that, like, they get married, like, a third of the way through the book, and then the rest of the book is going, this was, like, an awful idea. Right. And I like that because, like, that's also the thing in fantasy books, where there's, like, a wedding, like, The Lord of the Rings is the biggest example. Like, The Lord of the Rings pretty much ends with... The wedding of Aragorn and Arwen in Minas Tirith. Uh, and I know then that they like parade around for a while with Theoden's body on the way back to Rohan, and there's the scouring of the Shire. But that's kind of ancillary, you know, because like Tolkien spent so long getting to things, and then he breezes past like the fact that they spend two years in a funeral train for Theoden. Right. <laughs> in, in, in the space of two sentences, you know, it's like, well, they, they dallied all around Middle Earth. And it's like, what? Where did your descriptive style go? So, like, really the ending of it until they have to go back home and, like, deal with the fact that there's a lot of trauma still at home is this wedding. I mean, I feel like, as well, Tolkien is borrowing from 
Anglo-Saxon manuscripts and this kind of like fairy tale old saga thing where like a wedding solves problems or fixes unions or creates ties between diplomatic entities or states and like to see it actually have problems and have like like you said that bit where Sybil is like there's a whole ass person who lives inside of my husband who I don't know and is terrifying and like 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 cannot be controlled in his rage Right. And it's interesting, though, because Vimes also knows this because he says, like, she believes in me and believes that I have hidden depths. I know I have hidden depths. There's nothing in there I want floating to the surface. It's like he's protecting her from that part of him, which he which he should do. Yeah. So, like, the whole thing is that Sybil doesn't need protecting. Like, like that's good. I'm not like I'm like, it's good, but it's also it's also good for their relationship that, like, Vimes, I think, on an intrinsic level knows that Sybil kind of has more of a handle on her shit than he ever will, but he still is like, well, I'm married to you, I love you, and I need to protect you because we're married and I love you. And it's just like, it's the most reductive thing. He's like, we're married and I love you, and I must do this because I love you and we're married. There's so many lovely moments between them in this book, too. Like, way more than we've seen before. It's so simple. And like, just that, but like, that line is so sweet. She believes in me. The person who hates Vimes most is not Wolfgang. It's Vimes. Oh, yeah. He's his own worst enemy. And he like, lit, like, he's not even in his own head. Like, that person is a whole other person inside of him. He's like fully formed boots and all. That's the level that Vimes hates himself. I do love her confidence in him. Like, we do get to see her experience real shock after, like, the state of shock after the bandit incident. But she still, like, she says, I wasn't afraid because I knew you were there. And this is repeated later when she's a prisoner of the werewolves, when she says, he's going to show up. And when, you know, and then when the shouting starts, she's like, only Sam can make people scream like that, like that angry. Yeah. Like, she's, she's just like, yeah, he's going to show up, and it's going to be fine. Have I ever talked to you about Roddy Doyle's children's books, The Rover Adventures? Oh, so Roddy Doyle has these books for children. Like, he's most famous in Ireland for writing the Commitments trilogy, like the Snapper, the Van, the Commitments, which gives the Commitments trilogy its name. But he wrote these books for children about this dog called Rover who's, like, really, really intelligent. I, I have, actually, I remember, about Mr. Mac whose first name is Mr. Because when the census taker came around, the guy couldn't, his dad couldn't think, so he said his name is Mr. Mr. <laughs> like, that relationship he has with his wife, whose name is Billie Jean Fleetwood Mac. That's his wife's name. That's awesome. He makes people shout in annoyance because he's so, like, bumblingly stupid at times. He so infuriatingly does not have the wherewithal of, like, social graces that, like, she's in prison at one stage. And he, like, makes someone shout, and she's like, oh, well, he's coming to rescue me. Like, only... Like, it's the same moment. Only someone... Someone only shouts like that because they're having to deal with my husband. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. That is the dynamic here. There's a couple of things about their relationship, just a couple of moments I wanted to touch on. The first one is that when she goes into shock, he basically panics because he's not someone who can be physically demonstrative to her in public. It says, and so, like, he doesn't really know what to do. 
which I think could come off as like, oh, men aren't emotionally intelligent. But I think what actually we see is that he like desperately wants to take care of her and be there for her. Like he's constantly asking her in the book, are you okay? Are you okay? And he wants to protect her. He, like you said, he gets insanely angry when he finds out that she's been taken by the werewolves. But at the same time, he doesn't always know how to communicate that to her. And he kind of lets her take the lead in that area, which I think is probably for the best. But he genuinely does want to help her, which I think, I just, I don't know, that moment like really sticks out to me. Yeah, because it's it's so unadorned. Like if that makes if if that makes sense, that's the word I'm coming right. up against. Where it's like, like it's the little things that show you love someone. It's not always like buying them a bunch of big shit, because um, then the house just gets full of big shit. Plus, Sybil has all the money. Like she doesn't need anything. Yeah, Vimes is, Vimes is just really funny because he's married into wealth yet despises, like, the having of wealth. And so he, like, lives on just as much money as is necessary to live. <laughs> despite. It's like that moment with Inigo where Inigo is like, you paid the captain $1,000 to take this assassin, like, and, and, like, ship him halfway through around the world. He's like, yeah, he had 1200 on him. He's like, you used his own money, and Vimes was like, I'm not, I wasn't going to use any of my own. He could have just paid that captain a thousand dollars. He has that money, but he wasn't going to use it on this. He was going to take it from the assassin. Yeah. Oh man! But he sends Sherry up with her because he's like, Sherry will know what to do, um, which I just thought was was great. The other moments that I wanted to mention were they're pretty close to each other, but they're when they show up at the like pre coronation gala to-do party, whatever we want to call it, in the in the dwarf mine. And the first one is when he's he's talking about entering, and it says, but Sam Vimes had learned a lot from watching Lady Sybil. She didn't mean to act like that, but she'd been born to it, into a class that always behaved this way. You went through the world as if there was no possibility that anyone would stop you or question you, and most of the time that's exactly what happened. I love that he has watched her and has learned from her. It's very similar to what we were talking about with Carrot and Vimes a couple of books ago. Like, yeah. I love that he understands her strengths and has absorbed some of it into himself. Yeah, there's like three people who Vimes needs in life, and it's Carrot, Sybil, and Veninari. And all of them, like, are necessary for Vimes' growth as a human being. Absolutely. Even if Veninaria's, like, version of that is telling him not to do something. <laughs> because, like, with one terrible exception, Veninaria has helped Vimes, like, out of a bind. Or, like, helped him release the anguish that he's feeling in relation to a case. Yeah. He's helped him meet out justice in, like, a socially palatable way. Which I think is what Vimes needs, even though he feels like he doesn't. And he's empowered him. Like, he didn't do everything for Vimes. He makes it so Vimes can do it for himself. Yeah. The other thing happens on the exact same, like, the next page is when Vimes introduces Sybil to D, And he says, this is the Duchess of Ankh, my wife, Lady Sybil. And it's a code word, right? Where it's like, okay, like, if I call you this, it means I want you to out-Dutch everybody. I want you to act in this very specific way. And I love that she just goes with it. She just rolls with it. They work together so well 
at this party. And it's just, it's, we've never seen them do this before together. And I just, ah, it just makes me so happy. What did you think about the fact that she is pregnant and that they're going to have a baby? This was surprising. She was trying to tell him the whole book. Yeah. But also like, as a, I don't know why I didn't think it would happen. Is it because Sybil's older? No. That's a legitimate thing, is that we don't usually see older characters have babies like this. Yeah, no, I'm just, sorry, I sounded scandalized <laughs> there. I, it's not that. I understand, and I've said this before, I especially in relation to Nanny Og, like, I appreciate stories being told where older people are finding romance, and we don't often see them, and like you say, we don't often see stories of older people having babies. I just don't necessarily want to see them all the time. But, like, my surprise that it was, it the reveal of I'm pregnant is so often used as, like, this unnecessary reason to, like, ramp up the drama. You know, where it's like, oh, I'm pregnant. Uh, like, at the end of an episode or whatever. And that's used to fuel the thing. But whereas this is just, like, Sybil is pregnant. And that's what's surprising, is that she's just pregnant. Like, she's not she's not dramatically pregnant. Like, this is just a thing that happened. Right. It doesn't have anything to do with the plot at all. Like, I mean, yes, yeah, she is put in peril. Vimes isn't all of a sudden motivated to be like, oh, my unborn child. You know the way that, like, that's happening? In fact, his first question to her is, is it going to be all right? You're not as young as you used to be, which comes off as a little insensitive. But I think he's genuinely asking, like, are you going to be okay? Like, it, there's nothing about, like the unborn child in his first reaction. It's all about her. Have I mentioned before, I th- I feel like I have at least thought about, like, the concept of Vimes being a parent. Because, like, he's so sensitive to, like, the suffering of children, having grown yes. up as a child in the slums, that, like, him having a child that he needs to, like, show care and affection to maybe like the hardest challenge he'll probably ever face in like ensuring that kind of the, like that that peter capaldi line where you grip that hurt in the palm of your grip the pain in the palm of your hand till it hurts you and you say no further no one will ever have to live like this again like that's that's who vimes is i really hope that like i feel like terry pratchett isn't that kind of writer where you know sometimes where they're like i'm pregnant and then for no reason other than dramatic storytelling, the car like the character who's pregnant will suffer a miscarriage. Or there'd be something wrong with the baby. And I know medically, right, there is certain health risks associated with older women giving birth, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. I wanted to check that. After thirty five it's considered medically to be a geriatric pregnancy. A lot of women hate that term for really good reason, but that is medically yeah. like 35 is when it starts becoming riskier. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to check that because that's not something I know and it wasn't like covered in anything I've studied in relation to like having babies, which is like fundamental biology. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's amazing how many people don't know things about pregnancy and reproductive health. Like it's just not something our cultures emphasize like it should. I just want her to have the baby because, like, I want them to have a baby. And I don't want them to lose it to be like, well, this is going to, you know, like that kind of telenovela way where it's like, well, this is going to throw a big, big moral and, like, emotional spanner in Vimes' stability where he's, 
healing emotionally from the trauma uh, he suffered as a child and he's dealing with his alcohol addiction and now oh he's lost a child like there are certain writers who would play it that way and i'm fairly confident after having read 20 something terry pratchett books that terry pratchett isn't that writer and i'm really glad of that because it's so fucking unnecessary yeah absolutely i needed to like get that off my chest because like when fictional characters have a baby or are pregnant there's like so much baggage attached to it and i don't want that i want it to be a simple Man and woman having a child because they love each other and they love that child. Is that too much to ask? I completely understand. I mean, like, miscarriage is a real thing. And I'm glad that there are shows and movies that tackle that as a concept. But like you said, when it's used for dramatic purposes, yeah, when it's just a plot beat, I don't think that's very well done. So I agree with you. Absolutely. We're going to have to see what kind of parents they are, though. Up does it really well. Where they like they can't have a kid, and so then he spiritually adopts Russell, a bird and a dog, <laughs> and it's like this is the emotional journey Kyle Fredrickson needed, but like not everyone needs that. I need to come up with a term for it. I like coming up for with terms for things in fiction, and like with a completely unnecessary character to add trauma or death to a character's backstory. I just call it. Tra- I just call it Willy Wonka's dad. He's a Willy Wonka's dad. Like why is why is Christopher Lee in that film? Willy Wonka doesn't have a dad. He sprung out of a chocolate bar fully formed like <laughs> Athena. I like that. Sometimes I say things. <laughs> Sometimes really I good. Say things. I like that. <laughs> uh, so let's, let's talk about the other big romantic relationship, which is also a long-term relationship. This is not a new relationship, even though they're not married. We get Kara and Angua. And I'm really curious to know what you think about this, but I did want to say first, this to me feels like an escalation and a coming to terms with the issues in their relationship that we had seen that started really in Men at Arms, right? This idea that she's constantly thinking that she it's not going to last, I'm going to have to leave. You know, carrots too nice. We're never, it's not never going to make it. Like it felt like all of those things that had been building for books finally had payoff in this book. And for me, that was very satisfying. But I'd like to know what your thoughts were. It was satisfying for that as well because I liked that as a dynamic because like carrot is so simple that like we we've mentioned this before where he's like unable to come to terms with the fact that like people discriminate against Angua for being a werewolf and like might wish her harm and he's kind of powerless to do anything against that like he assumes that things will maintain their state of equilibrium unless he checks up on it again and that, like i understand I-, I really do understand that that, that like fear that a relationship won't last like going into a relationship with that but like it's nice for that to be out in the open like Angra pretty much like voices all of her concerns in a way she's never done before She's always almost done it, but she's never done it. She's so ready in previous books to, like, move away from Ankh Morpur. And she would prefer if it's with Carrot, but, like, she has to come to terms with the fact that Carrot will never move away from Ankh Morpork willingly. But then he does! He quits his job and comes after her, which I don't think she was expecting. No, and I wasn't expecting that either. Like, I expected he would come after her because, like fundamentally they are in love like this is kind of like a baseline thing they're in love this is their relationship 
but I wasn't expecting him to pursue his love at the expense of his other love. Like, this is another thing I'm grateful for, because, like, there is a bit of where he, where he's like, so, Gavin, like, where he, he feels like Gavin is, like, encroaching on Angua for a bit. And they have that kind of, like, nearly power struggle. But, like, the City Watch is also kind of his mistress, in a way. You know, like, that, like, the sea is a cruel mistress thing that certain sailors have in mm-hmm. fiction. But it leads to one of the most heartbreaking moments in, like, all of the books. Where, I, I I don't know, I don't want to, like, suggest this, but, like, partly, this feels kind of like a continuation of, like, the Granny Weatherwax having the power to put people out of their misery, potentially being amusing on assisted suicide for Pratchett. But this is, like, through the lens of violence. Mm. Well, if it happened, if it did, like, where she's, like, if I ever became, like, Wolfgang, like my brother, like, because she's so afraid that, like, this is in her blood and she can't escape it. And that's, I think, at the heart of her insecurity. Like, in the other books, she's always said, like, it'll never work, it'll mm. never work. But she never really says why. She kind of blames it on we're just too different. But it's this book where we realize that her insecurity is that she doesn't think it'll work because she'll eventually go bad. Like, that she's not good enough for him. Which is heartbreaking. Would you do what Vimes did? Carrot, would it be you who picked up a weapon and came after me? I know you won't lie. I've got to know. Would it be you? I like, she makes him promise. She wants it to be him because it's a final moment of kindness. Like, that it's not detritus or cherry or even vimes, even though, like, she cares about those people. That she mm-hmm. wants it to be her boyfriend who puts her out of her misery, I think, because, like, she would be miserable. I think, like, because she she would have spent so much of her life being afraid of this that if it ever happened, I don't think she'd be able to recover from that. It's such a good scene between the two of them, especially because... So we've seen before that Carrot really believes in this personal is not the same as important. This is something that has been in the book since Men at Arms. However, Carrot actually goes against that in this book by going after Angua. Like, he abandons the watch while Vimes is away in order to... He leaves the watch to Colin in order to go after Angua. And I think that that is the first truly selfish thing we've seen him do. And I think ultimately that's why Angua goes back with him. But we still see that deep down he truly does believe personal is not the same as important because in that moment he is able to tell her, yes, I would. I you know, I promise that I'll do this because he knows that one, that's what she needs to hear. But she, he also knows that two, that's what would need to be done. You know, if she did go evil, like Wolfgang. Yeah, because like she would need to be, she would need to be put down, but it would need to be him. Mm-hmm. The importance is the killing of Angua, not that like he he's her boyfriend. Yes. Because it says, like, a couple of paragraphs before that, like, and though he tries hard, he never has a cynical thought. That, like, it's never, he's never had any kind of shrewd moment where he tries to, where he, like, tries to manipulate anything to get some sort of, like, personal gain out of it. He's never had a moment like that. Angua does say he can play nasty when he wants to at the end of the book, when he yells at Colin. <laughs> Yeah. 
I think that made her love him more, actually, because she's been waiting to see this side of him, to see that vulnerability from him and seeing him, one, Mm. come after her, two, promise that he would be the one to do it if she ever went bad. And then three, the way that he's like nasty to to Colin, even though it's in like such a carrot way, it's not even like what we would normally think of as nasty. Like he makes he makes Colin speed shave. <laughs> like she was looking for that chink in his armor and she found it, you know, and that made her feel like, OK, like we can build a life together based on mutual vulnerability. I like as well that Vimes also steps away from the watch for a week or two or three at the outside. His honeymoon! They have a honeymoon! He finally has, like, space to be romantic without, like, someone constantly calling to the door in the middle of dinner. Cherry does, where she's like, oh, the scone of stone has been stolen. Or, like, Carrot showing up and saying, like, oh, there's been a murder. And he he goes, oh, well, I have to do this. And Sybil understands, yes. But, like, this is finally time for him to just be a husband and not a cop. I actually think that calling Carrot... I I feel like Carrot and Angua's relationship moves past boyfriend and girlfriend in this. They don't get married. But I really love how Angua claims him as hers. Like, she says this several times. Like, Carrot is mine. And the idea that, like, Wolfgang would come after him because he's Angua's. I just think that that's a really interesting terminology. We've never seen Angua use it before. But it, it, it kind of builds into this primal, like, like this person is mine. Like, not ownership, but possessiveness. Yeah. They're essentially, like, l- like long-term partners who are living together, but, like, because of their their hang ups and the fact that Carrot, like I I don't think would would think to progress the relationship to the next level that they ha- like otherwise I think they would be married and so like I think they're married in all but name and th- I don't know oh, like yeah I know you say like this is not marriage but I feel like this is as much an I do as they're like able to do at this point like I I think they're married now. Oh, yeah. I mean, I agree with that, too, because they've worked out a lot of their issues and the relationship feels more resolved than it did in any of the other books. I just think that that language of mine is interesting. It feels like something like a wolf or a dog would say, right? Like, this is mine. Yeah. And I think that Sybil and Vimes would also say that of each other, too. In a way that I think like Colin and his wife wouldn't because they're married, but they're not like each other's. I think because there's that distance, like, yes, they're happily married, but I don't think they're each other's in that kind of like intrinsic way that, um, Angua and Carrot and Vimes and Sybil seem to be. Well, not all marriages are the same. People want different things out of marriages. So yeah, I mean that, that definitely makes sense. Or people, some people don't want to get married, right? But that doesn't mean they don't have that relationship. Yeah. What did you think about Angua's relationship with her family? Fraught. Fraught? Yes. Fraught is a word which should be used more often. But especially because, like, the only inclination of Angua's family we've had before is when Dragon King of Arms has, like, looked into her history and it's kind of intimated that he's not happy with 
her being a cop, right? In in Ankh-Morpork. Right, and he doesn't like werewolves. Like, he's afraid that Kara yeah. and Angua would have children, which is also a fear of Angua's, that they would have children and that it would taint the bloodline because he's a eugenicist. Yeah, but, like, that's all we knew. We Like, as far as we knew, Angua was kind of like an only child for all intents and purposes. Like, yeah, part of a wolf pack, but, like, they're not necessarily related. Right. And I think... I think that is important to exploring Angua's family, the fact that, like, it's a pack, but also part of it is a family. I think it's interesting. She talks about how he killed one of her siblings and drove the other one away. Yeah, but as well, like, we have the one distinction between Wolfgang and their father, right? Where, like, Wolfgang doesn't play fair, even though there is, like, their father... You know, he does horrible things, yeah, but, like, Wolfgang is more horrible. And to come to terms with, like, the fact that someone you're related to is, like, a horrible person or has done horrible things, and, like, that can be kind of any... in any context, you know? It can be, like, a murderer or... uh, I don't want to, like, bring it up on the podcast, but I feel like listeners know what I mean. It's kind of like the way... I say that, but then I'm also, like, I'm going to bring up Adolf Hitler in the next sentence. There's a lot of fascism surrounding Wolfgang. I mean, he has the flag and the stylized wolf and, yeah. his, and his youth army that, like, believes in the strength, you know, strongest win. Yeah, but, like, all the people who were kind of related to Hitler and had that last name, like, all chose to not have kids because they were, like, so ashamed with being related to Hitler. I think that's an actual thing that happened and not just a fiction. But, like, that kind of idea, where there's, like, it's the opposite of generational trauma. At least the beginnings of it, if you let it happen. Mm-hmm. We have to come to terms that, like, this ripple has just been made in the blood of the family. Oh, uh, do we bring up nature versus nurture? Like, it's such an old, it's such old hat. But, like, she's learned to be better. Unsaid in her saying, he killed my sister and drove my brother away, he drove her away, too. Right? Like, she's she doesn't say yeah. that, but that's why she left, was because she had to separate herself from him. Yeah, and then that raises the question, does she not count herself as worthy of being driven away? Well, she sees herself too much in him, right? They were the only two classic bimorphs. Mm. They're the ones who always tangled with each other. She believes he, she's the only one who can beat him in a fight. She feels responsible for him. Yeah, what's her, brother's, or her brother that um, Wolfgang killed's name again? Elsa is the is the sister he killed. Andre is the one who is a werewolf, but is always a wolf who runs away and becomes a sheepdog in Lanker. Because we also get this idea of the Yenork, the the werewolves that don't change. And Carrot's like, oh, so a wolf and a human. She's like, no, they're werewolves. They just don't change. I think the stuff about werewolves in this book is also very interesting because... Angua basically says, like, we're not humans and we're not wolves. It's very easy to think of us as humans that change into wolves, but we're not either. And people hate us because we're not either. Like, both wolves hate us, humans hate us. And I think this is even more driven home by the fact that Gavin is clearly an ex-boyfriend. And so the idea that, like, she has dated both wolves and humans because she is neither is a very interesting Mm. way of solidifying the image of the werewolf as being this liminal creature, this 
this creature that exists between two states. It isn't one or the other. This is like an interesting like extrapolation of being trans in Discworld. And it's kind of like a, a massive I'm gonna just do this to like all the people who are trying all the transphobes who are trying to co opt uh the spirit of Terry Pratchett. Nigel is flipping the bird. <laughs> Twice. Twice. Uh, double make, double flipping that. the bird. It's, <laughs> where they're trying to like co-op the Discworld books to further their transphobic agenda and it's like we have is it in this book where they say like Cherry's name is C-H-E-E-R-Y but it's pronounced Cherry yes. and like she's a she where it's like that where it's like this is like this is her name this is the name she's chosen for herself and not her dead name clearly a trans metaphor because they argue about pronouns <laughs> and then like vimes when he's talking to her there's so much about this where like the werewolves is one thing and like even carrot i don't get it cherry there's all this fuss about a female dwarf trying to act like a lady sir right and yet no one says anything about carrot being called a dwarf but he's a human no sir like he says he's a dwarf he was adopted by dwarves. He's performed the Ygrad. He observes the Jakarga insofar as that's possible in a city. He's a dwarf. Yeah, there's a lot about identity in this. And like, what does it mean to identify as something? What does it mean to challenge traditional ideas of identity? And I see that in Angua, but I also see it, like you said, in, in, in Cherry. I, let's talk about Cherry, because I, I frankly loved this storyline in a lot of ways, because it's really her confronting a lot of the transphobia I'm going to call it transphobia because I see her as a trans character in dwarvish mm. society. And it's just, it's so spot on in a lot of ways because it's interesting that what they really see as a challenge to their identity is Cherry's refusal to see sex and gender as merely procreative because that's all they value gender and sex for in Dwarvish culture. This idea of, well, we kind of have to figure it out so we can have a child. But she refuses mm. to see it that way. Like, gender is something for her that is more closely tied to her identity as a person. And she wants to express it in the ways that she wants to express it. And so it is interesting that just like a lot of trans people challenge the idea that gender is related to sex is related to procreative sex, she's also challenging that in Dwarvish society. We have the bit at the end where she's, like, giving tips up to, like, the Low King and then also, like, some of the other dwarves, right, about, like, places to get dresses and, like, makeup, like, or, like in Ankh-Morpork or, or wherever that would be. Kind of confronting the fact that, like, in such a conservative society that you have to, like, do whatever you can to, like, stay alive. I, I mean, like, that's the case now. I don't know whether they would murder someone in Dwarvish society for being trans. Which, I mean, it kind of sucks that we're worse than a fucking fantasy world uh, in terms of, like, oppressive trans politics. I don't know. There's a couple of really tense moments in this book surrounding her and the only reason they don't escalate is one detritus who is a great trans ally in this book i love that scene where the dwarf one of the dwarves call her like a word that means something obviously very transphobic and it clearly affects her and detritus like pulls up the peacemaker and he's like i know that word that he just called her i don't want to hear that word again and i i loved that scene from detritus 
and then Vimes it happens with Vimes later where he says, if I ever hear that word said in the presence of me or my staff again, there's going to be trouble. And I think that those situations would have escalated if Vimes and Detritus hadn't been there. Yeah, it's kind of summed up at the end where, like, the conservative, like, dwarves in uh, Ankh-Morpork, not, sorry, not in Ankh-Morpork, in Uberval, but, like, there are some still in Ankh-Morpork, that's what they say. It's just that, like, this is such a powerful enclave of them, you know, and especially when they're trying to elect a low king, and the 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 new low king is less conservative than the person they think should have gotten it. It attempts to, like, repair race relations and gender relations within, like, within Uberwald. Because, like, there, there is that uh, species divide between dwarves and, and trolls. It occurred to him that in two handshakes, the white-bearded elderly dwarf had done more than a dozen devious plots could have achieved. By the time those ripples reached the edge of Uberwald, they would be tidal waves. Thirty men and a dog would be nothing by comparison. Where it's like, you formally recognize a, a dwarf as being a female, and you formally recognize a troll in dwarf society and thank him. Whereas, like, that's important. Yeah. Just even recognition. The relationship between Sherry and Detritus in this book. Like, I feel like this is the new Cuddy and Detritus. Like, they're becoming best friends. And I love it because, like, there's this scene that emphasizes that when they're at the gala and Vimes goes to look for them and they're standing back to back with each other while they're having, like, this small talk. And to me, that's such a yeah. gesture of solidarity. Like, the idea that, like, they know that both of them are in a place that is actively hostile to both of them. Her because she's a woman and him because he's a troll. But they're going to they're gonna watch each other's backs. It's such a small, simple detail that could be easily missed. But I just loved it. It was such a great like moment between the two of them. And even on a metaphorical level, like for a marginalized group, knowing someone who's part of the group who holds the like, like who like benefits from societal prejudice, you know, like be that a cis person in the case of a trans person or like a white person in the case of like someone experiencing racial discrimination, knowing that they will stand with them no matter what, even if it's a life or death situation, like, that's very ref- like and i mean that's kind of how a lot of change happens is that like like the, the the people recognize the struggles of marginalized groups and it's not all i'm not gonna like i'm not gonna sit here and say white people are responsible for ending racism or whatever that's not what i'm saying but like i mean to know I that there think are that they should i mean white people are generally the worst about it oh no 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 like what i mean is that like like i don't want to like erase the actual struggles of black people like you know like in america that context but like it did help that there were white people willing to like actually listen and then pass the laws that Mm -hmm. ended segregation and stand with them yeah exactly like african-american suffrage is what ended segregation right i see what you're saying not not white people yeah but just knowing that that you have that people couldn't end it and i'm like well white people should probably think about ending it a lot more nowadays yeah no 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 just what what i yeah what i mean is that like they're the ones who can actually make change, mm-hmm. but it's the people who are going out and protesting and, like, suffering that, like, that's what's important. Absolutely. Solidarity. Solidarity. Solidarity forever. Lots of solidarity in this book. Two more things about the trans narrative in this book. One, I actually read this section to Sam last night because I was like, this is you. Like, you, you have told me this before. 
And she was like, yeah, that's that's it. Exactly. So this is a scene where Sherry uh, is getting ready to go to the party with Lady Sybil. Lady Sybil herself usually wore ball gowns of a light blue, a color often chosen by ladies of a certain age and girth to combine the maximum of quiet style with the minimum of visibility. But dwarf girls had heard about sequins. They seemed to have decided in their bones that if they were going to overturn thousands of years of subterranean tradition, that they weren't going to go through all that for no damn twin set and pearls. Yeah. Obviously, if you're a trans woman, you can dress however you want. However, I know a lot of trans women who actually think this, and Sam is one of them, this idea that, like, no, if I'm going to do this, I'm I'm not going to, like, fade into the background. Like, I'm going to be super femme. I'm going to do, like, I'm going to dress loudly. I'm going to wear sequins. I'm going to get all that stuff that I've been denied all these years. I read that out loud, and Sam was like, yeah, that is absolutely right. That is absolutely it. Yeah, I think that's the whole, like, that's the whole point is, like, this is kind of like a shout where it's like, this is me, but, like... It's sad that there is, like, a political bit to that instead of just being like, well, trans women can wear whatever they want, where it's like part of it has to be overturning hundreds of years of prejudice. You know, like, just, like, we shouldn't have to exist to overturn biases, or we shouldn't have to prove that we exist to overturn these biases. Like, people should just let us exist. Call me a bit selfish. I would like to exist, please. Thank you. Stop uh, <laughs> Stop discriminating against me. So selfish of you, Nigel. No. So selfish to exist as, as I am. I just think it's interesting that Terry Pratchett managed to grasp this idea that a lot of trans women go through of like, I'm not going to be unobtrusive. Like, I'm going to fucking wear sequins and red lipstick and you know paint my nails you know what i mean like the there's a reason why there are a lot of trans women who are uber femme and it's because they have this like no i'm if i'm gonna do this i'm gonna go all the way do you think terry pratchett like knew a lot of trans people or like this was just something he had observed after reading this book i really think that he did yeah like this is not a case of oh i have trans friends don't worry i can say that but like this feels like he like he's writing to a certain group of people. Uh like Terry Pratchett is a really good ally. It, like or he's becoming a better ally. Because like some of those earlier books yeah. were bit iffy. Cough, cough, interesting times, cough, cough. But yeah, no, like I like that because if he didn't know them, like this feels like he at least went out and like did a bit of research or, like, spoke to trans people about their experiences, which is what I hope. Like, you shouldn't just write a character and then be like, well, I've just, like, I've made a guess at what their lived experience is. And, like, well, like, well, I wrote it and this is just what I knew at the time and I did nothing to, like, better myself. You can't really fault me for that. I hate those people. They can fuck off. Sorry, I've gotten very, I've gotten very violent this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> No, considering the specificity of a lot of the stuff he says about Cherry in this, I'm going to say definitely knew some trans people. The other thing I wanted to mention was that the other antagonist, although we don't know they're an antagonist until the very end, is D, who is the ideas taster of Mm. Flo King. What did you think about the ending? And I'm just going to read it, and I just want your reaction to this, where... She starts to confess, and she says why she did it. I'm using she, you notice. Dee pointed a finger at 
Cherry. Hawk. How can you even look at it? You let her, and Vimes had seldom heard a word sprayed with so much venom, her flaunt herself here. And it's been happening everywhere because people have not been firm, have not obeyed, have let the old ways slide. Everywhere there are reports. They're eating away at everything dwarvish with their their soft clothes and paint and beastly ways. How can you be king and allow this? Everywhere they are doing it and you do nothing. Why should they be allowed to do this? Now Dee was sobbing. I can't. So like we get this outing of this character in this way. What did you think about the way that this character is portrayed? First of all, I love the concept of an ideas taster. Oh yeah, great. Great stuff. Great stuff, yeah. Because like the king has like a poison taster in so many fantasies. Or like who just tests the food. Which is like, that. that is a job which is fraught. Imagine that. You imagine like just being that person where it's like you've signed on where it's like an unreasonably high risk that you're going to die performing your job. Like more so than soldiering, really. Because if you're good at soldiering, then you're going to win. Eh, well. Like most of the time. But like, I, I don't know. This is like really, this is actually genuinely interesting for like seeing What's essentially, like, internalized transphobia depicted in a book? You know, we're, like, internalized prejudices are a thing. You know, like, but to to actually see that represented really kind of does add to the fact that, like, or to, to the idea that, like, Terry Pratchett probably did talk to trans people or new trans people, you know, for this. And, like, was able to put that in. But But it's also not the point of the book that D is a woman who wasn't allowed to be a woman. Like, that's not the point of the book. This is just, like, a thing. Th- like, we don't have the stereotyping of this is a villain and they're either queer or disabled, like Mr. Kid and Mr. Wint. Right, because you don't even know until the very end. She's lived in a society where, like you said earlier on, some of the most conservative dwarves never even go above ground. Like, this this is one of the arguments where people have said, like, oh, trans people are only a thing that came about in the... Someone tried to tell me that, like, trans people are, were only a thing since, like, the 80s. And I was like, um... I, I, like, I didn't respond to them, but, like, it was... I was just like, huh. But in the same way that, like, dis, people with disabilities... Like, disabilities aren't a recent thing. Just the way that they were spoken about in society right. in earlier times, like people with autism, especially, like the language around them was so different that you like nearly wouldn't recognize it as this person has a disability, especially if it's not a physical disability, because like that's fairly like easy to pinpoint where you're like, well, this person, you know, like this person has lost the use of a limb or was born without a limb. That's fairly easy to report. But, like, when you don't actually understand these things that, yeah, we now have words for to express in the modern times, or when you just don't know that this is a thing that you can, like, express, the like, that, 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 that's genuinely refreshing as fuck. Chef's kiss to see represented. Someone who's, who's lived their whole life mm-hmm. being told they can't be a certain way, that, like, They've never even entertained the note, like, like, societally, you can't be a certain way. That they've never even entertained the notion that they might be that. Because then, like, the narrative refers to D as she, right? 
Oh yeah, her pronouns immediately are corrected. Yeah, like th- like they say this this is the stone that D destroyed in her madness. Like like the point of it is that she's mad over this thing, but the point isn't that the point like it's not a J.K. Rowling plot. It's not it's not troubled blood where it's like well the serial killer likes to dress up as a woman, and it's very clearly just scapegoating trans people as evil. Like this is just like it's an evil person who happens to be trans. Right, and the madness comes from the suppression of that identity from society, not from her as a trans person. Like, it comes from the conflict that she has with the way she's always been told to be, not from trans people are unstable. What did you think about the fact that Reese tells Cherry that he, she, might have business for her dressmaker in the fullness of time. Cherry seems to think that that's confirmation that Reese is actually a woman. After D accidentally, like, comes out. Like, I think that's kind of, like, almost as important a moment for the dwarves to accept that, like, they can be women if they want to be. Mm-hmm. Because, like, it's finally put into words on so prominent a stage that, like, Cherry has the liberty to be trans because she's not in Uberwald. And, like, this is something which is societally denied to them. And so, like, now the dwarves can actually, like, examine, am I a man? Do I want to express myself? Like, Like, do I want to express my gender identity in a different way? Am I am I gender fluid? Am I, or in the case of like like in previous books, am I just a man who likes to dress up like a woman? We get some confirmation that Nobby does in this book. Yeah, exactly. Like like Nobby is a man who likes to dress up in women's clothes, but he's not trans. That's just some like right. But also like like just being like this is a thing you can do. Drag and trans are linked. Dragon being trans, not just dragon trans. Um, <laughs> doing drag and being trans are, are linked, and there are some drag queens who are trans. I did not know this. I This is just a thing that, like, it was a case of I had never encountered it, and so it had never occurred to me. But, like, on one of the more recent seasons, I think it was 13 of RuPaul's Drag Race, there was a um, drag queen who was trans, and that was like it was, like, a big thing for them like performing drag while also being trans but it's also like they're not intrinsically linked drag comes from black ballroom culture that yeah. was born from trans women black trans women but then it became something that cis gay men did as well and so you get like this performance of drag by cis gay men and you also have those ties back to trans women. And obviously trans women can also do drag as well. So a trans men can do drag as well. Yeah. Like there's so much that we have co-opted into like somewhat, it's somewhat like socially accepted, you know, more mm-hmm. so than like being trans in, in terms of like what cis white, cis straight white society has accepted. Like drag is above being trans, but like so much of it, is stuff that, like, was part of the black community. 
and that's nearly like been forgotten. Like so many people are like, oh, I can't keep up. I, this is a tweet I saw. So many people are like, oh, I can't keep up with modern slang these days. And so much of it is just like AAVE from the 80s that like has now been yes. co-opted into vocabulary. Yeah, where it's like there are roots to this that are born in so much more like struggling to have your identity recognized that like most people don't even know about these days. And like it's a really important part of the conversation. I would definitely recommend anyone who's interested in this, like where that ballroom culture comes from. I would really recommend watching Paris is Burning, which is a documentary that was done by Jenny Livingston back in 1990. But it's a really good documentary about like kind of the beginnings of like that drag culture. It's fascinating. I I really recommend it, especially if you don't know that that culture comes from primarily people of color. Because like up like up until now I I didn't really like well not now but like culturally now like within the last two or three years when I began to like come to terms with my own gender identity and like stuff being like I didn't even know that like this is a recent thing that I learned about drag people don't talk about it because they associate it most with cis white men who are really appropriating it from well, I mean they used to now it's kind of become a more accepted thing. The other thing that I really want to talk about that comes out of this conversation is this book has so much more modernity in it than previous books have. The technology jump alone from the last book to this book is huge. You have the Sephamore Towers, the clacks, which become a huge part of this, this idea of like telegraphing information, that information moves a lot faster across the discs now. You have the pneumatic tubes in the watch house, which is very steampunk. The dwarves have an elevator and you get a lot of descriptions of like the locks, the way that they uh, use the water to bring boats up and down the river. You get references to bioengineering with the Igors, which is a whole other fascinating part of Uberwald. What did you think about just this like turn? Like we've seen it before, but it's a full turn into steampunk now. I'm happy for like, semaphore representation in books too i love semaphore uh i just want to get that off my chest real quick but like that is a thing like that like that was an early form of the signal tower like especially in france i know about this in france because someone used it to like commit like such an epic uh scam on on the lottery in france it was so funny but it was like either it would have a person or it would have these like flags that like moved like that with uh, like a, a a wire and it would transmit those motions down a series of things. That's how they worked. Like, that's genuinely the most fascinating piece of technology that's in this. Like, yeah, pneumatics is cool, and yes, like, barge locks in canals are interesting too, but, like, semaphore! (laughs) And I like that there's a distinct fantasy turn because all the semaphore companies employ gargoyles because they can just, like, sit there and watch without blinking. Yeah ever right like they don't really need anything except for the occasional pigeon and i that's just such a fantasy way of like putting a spin on the sephamore tower which is a real yeah. technological thing yeah especially because like gargoyles uh, uh, like like constable downspout is like it is downspout right yeah i was trying to remember what his name is because he's only ever really brought up rarely it's funny because the watch is, like, this bastion of diversity, but, like, the Watch books are, like, yeah, 
we've got a zombie, we've got a vampire, we've got a dwarf, we've got a troll, we've got a human. Oh, and the... Well, they don't have a vampire. Vimes is still no, but like that, against vampires but, in the watch. Yeah, no, but like no that's vampires. what they're like. That's like, his We've got all this. And, and then the watch books are like, oh yeah, we also have a gargoyle constable who's been there for like like way longer than a lot of them. And a golem and a knack McFeagle. But it's it's so funny how the book like seems to temporarily forget Constable Downspout. But like 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 there is very little opportunities for gargoyles in Ankh Pork that it's kind of like refreshing that they have a job that like they can actually do that isn't just Yeah, and it's made for them. Yeah. Do you know where like the word gargoyle comes from? No. I think it's like the noise that the water makes. Like being represented in a French word, I think. That kind of like gargle. Oh yeah, that makes sense. The rainwater would go through them and out their mouths. Yeah, it's also perhaps a form of the word grotesque. Oh, hold on. The term originates from the French gargoyle, which in English likely means throat or is otherwise known as the gullet. Similar words derive from the root gar to swallow, which represents the gurgling sound of water. So you're absolutely right. Yeah, I think... Yeah. And I could be I, I could be wrong on this. I think in terms of, like, statue statuary is that the word like making statue statues and or like statuary gargoyles are a separate thing from grotesques in terms of the things you put on buildings i i remember something about this because i think like especially on notre dame they're like two separate things in the in terms of the stonework that's on them Vimes is constantly talking about how just having information that readily available changes the way that people fundamentally think. Like the way that if technology is like a paradigm shift, it's not just like, oh, people think the same way after this like world changing piece of technology. They don't. They fundamentally don't. Culture changes as technology changes. It's like and I like how that ties in with the Low King storyline because there's this idea that you know, modernity can be a bad thing, which we've seen from Carpe Juggalum, but it can also be a good thing because it can allow people like Cherry and like the Low King and like Detritus to more fully be themselves and to be more safe as themselves. And I just, I think that that's, it's interesting, again, that we have these two books back to back because one is almost like modernity sucks, like modernity leads to people like the Count. And then the other one is like, no, modernity can allow people space to be themselves. Yeah, like, not to give Bo Burnham credit for, like, the idea, and also because, like, we shouldn't just believe things because, like, a white comedian says them, but, like, the way he puts it in Welcome to the Internet, just, like, a little bit of everything all of the time in terms of, like, the information highway that's happened from, like, the... Like, we have... Hex. We don't really have like an internet yet, but I'm hopeful because now I'm only I'm only now making this connection that like the internet was made by Tim Berners Lee as like a a thing at the college at CERN in Switzerland, and like Hex is now a a computer that was made at the Unseen University. So I wonder is that the route they're going? Do we get an internet? We'll have to see. Yeah, because, like, as well, it's not even, like, technology. Like, this is a thing, like, this is a thing that also kind of sometimes falls out of the conversation when you're talking about 
when you're talking about innovation and especially like, cause so much of it is centered around the industrial revolution in terms of like, like quality of life improving, but even, like, like the wheel fundamentally changed people's life. Fire fundamentally changed people. Like all throughout life, we've had these great revelations where something is built that fundamentally upsets the way things are like ordered. And I think the next one we're getting going to get is probably like quantum computing or something. Cause I feel like, like how, like that's going to have far reaching effects or something, but like, there's so many, even like small things, like e- even within like a very specific field, I don't know, cauldron making, someone probably made something <laughs> that like made the world of making cauldrons infinitely easier and better for the people who make cauldrons. Like, it doesn't have to be the steam engine, but there's, like, so much technology that drastically improves people's lives in some way that it's nearly this, like, historical constant that you can, like, set your watch by, someone will make something which will drastically change the way someone else's technology has run. Is this relevant to the book? Probably not. But. This is a fun Discworld podcast because sometimes we talk about Discworld and sometimes sometimes we talk about other things. That's our slogan. And sometimes we talk about Discworld, sometimes we talk about other things. I'm going to start saying that at the beginning. Yeah, I think that there's a lot in here about the way the world changes and how it can be good and how it can be bad and how it affects certain people in certain ways. I mean, that's the beauty of the Discworld is that he's able to use it in these ways to interrogate these concepts that don't have easy answers. And I don't think Terry Pratchett's interested in easy answers. This actually reminds me of Trollbridge. You remember Trollbridge? Yeah. You remember how we read yes, that? Yes, uh, I And how that was an, emo- an emotionally affecting story. War also. It, like, irrevocably changes people. And, like, that's where a lot of... Here, actually, fun thing... Do, I don't know whether you know this, and I don't know, whether, don't know whether the listeners know this, so excuse the transplanting for a second. Like, this is where technology is so often, like, used, like, for... This is where the innovations are. War and porn. Like, there's so much... There's Sex and violence! Yeah. There's so much of now, like, the porn industry that's apparently being shaped by how technology is moving... But anyway, but it's also like the people who participate in war go away and come back if they come back to a world that is so changed while they're in what's essentially like a fixed state. And that's what that's what Cohen is talking about in Trowbridge, really. The fact that like he's he spent so long just being a soldier and just doing war that when he comes back to the society that that war is changing, that, like, it's so fundamentally different that he doesn't even know whether he has a place in it. Yeah, I think that that is part of this as well. Like, you know, you have to adapt or or die in some ways, um, which is the main point of a lot of Octavia E. Butler's books, is that... Yeah, especially you know, Kindred, right? Kindred, but especially Parable of the Sower, that's actually the foundation of the religion in parable of the sower Mm. but it's true in the xenogenesis trilogy it's true in wild seed this idea that you have to change or die you have to adapt or die things don't stop and if you don't change if you don't allow yourself to change you're not going to survive and i think that that is at the the heart of 
this book as well. This idea that dwarf yeah. society has to change. It has to allow these people to live as they are. It can't be stuck in the past or they'll die. Yeah, exactly. Where it's like people are like, why can't we like, oh, no, we can't give rights to ethnic minorities or we can't give rights to trans people because like, oh, that's not the done thing. But it's also like it's also like we used to drill holes in people's heads to let ghosts out because that's what we thought worked. Uh, do you ever worry sometimes that I mean, I fully expect that the world is going to end in the next 50 years. But do you ever think sometimes that if somehow we don't all die from climate change, that in like 200 years, people will look back at our medicine and be like, oh, my God, <laughs> they did. Yeah, what? like, yeah, it's like they didn't have blip blorp to do that. I, I, I can't like I don't know enough about medicine to like come up with the believable thing. So like they call it blip blorp. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, do you think in 200 years they'll listen to our podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's going to write their dissertation about podcasting in the 21st century and we are going to be like a chapter. And they were like, the Nanny Oggs Book Club podcast. Sometimes they talked about the Discworld series <laughs> and there'll be a footnote explaining like what the Discworld is. And then, and sometimes they talked about other things. <laughs> So there's a couple of other people we have to mention have, that have minor roles, but I think that it's important to talk about them before we end. The first one is Vetinari, who we see very briefly in a couple of scenes in this. Still your comfort character, I assume? Yes. We see him visit Leonard of Quirm, who has invented both a coffee machine and an, an Enigma device. <laughs> Although he doesn't call it Enigma. Uh, okay, so what Leonard of Quirm says, so you can you can check this, is the engine for the neutralization, neutralizing of information by the generation of miasmic alphabets. I just think it's funny that he came up with a name that is an acronym for Enigma, but he's like, I don't really like that name, but I can't think of how to shorten it. <laughs> Vetinari and Margolotta both refer to a historic romance between the two of them. Didn't care for it. Yeah, but I still got a lot of Arena Adler vibes from it. Like the idea of like, this is someone who is his intellectual equal, and so they're kind of attracted to each other because of that. Yeah, it's not really developed in any way, but it just gave me Irina Adler vibes. But see, like, here's the thing also, like, I don't care about the relationship between Irene Adler and Sherlock Holmes because, like, I don't think that there needs to be. That relationship really does feel a lot like... Well, one, it feels a lot like, okay, we have to have a romance because he's a dude and heterosexuality demands that dudes are into women. Mm. But two, it gives the impression that Sherlock Holmes can only be attracted to someone who's his intellectual equal. Well, I mean, in the stories, there there is no romance. Well, it's an implied romance. Like, he... He, they don't ever have like a physical relationship, but the idea no. that like he's the only woman she's or she's the only woman he's ever been attracted to. Yeah. Meanwhile, Irene Adler in, in the story is just like happily married. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I just wanted to bring that up about Vetinari. He seems to be having a lot of fun poking at Vimes and and at the watch in general in this book. Mm. But he but he doesn't almost die. Yes. There's no assassination attempt. Which is strange, because I feel like this is the opportune moment for someone to try. Because I know they say like that most of the plots against Vendinari, Vendinari has some hand in or knows of. 
the best time to try and kill Venonari is when Vimes is indisposed. Because Venonari can't can't set Vimes on the case. Like, even if Venonari knows, like in Feet of Clay, what's happening to him. Venonari's terrier is away. Yeah. Speaking of terriers... Gaspode, the wonder dog. Who helps Carrot find Angua, and helps Gavin go up against Wolfgang. I was very upset because I thought Gaspode had died. But it's also like death shows up to him and all. And he's like, he's like, is it my time? And Death's like, strangely not. But I like that they acknowledge that because so often in fiction you have like a person falls from an insane height and they just like bounce off of a thing and they're not Spider-Man. You know, where it's like the rock should really have been paralyzed 50 times in this film. And this is any film that the rock has been in, except for the tooth fairy. You tell me, what did you think about Gaspode's storyline in this? I'm not sure. I'm not sure, because, like, it's good that he's, like, helping out, but it also feels like that he's nearly sidelined in this, when, which is, like, unfortunate because I like Gaspode. That's my main thing. Right. It's like, if Gaspode is in this book, I would like there to be more of him, but for what he's in the book, I think it's a good storyline, especially because there's this kind of, like, conflict between... Like, what werewolves, wolves, humans, and dogs are. And that, like, Gaspode, who is a dog, helps Carrot, who is a human, find Angua, who is, like, worrying about being a werewolf. Or, uh, I've forgotten what the name... Yenork. Yenork. Yeah. Like, there's all these different things, and so you have, like, people who are on the outside of it. Like, like, who are deliberate, or who are, like, like, linked to that conflict but on the outside of it you know of their species i don't know what what am i saying i don't know but i liked it do you ever just open your mouth and then like you go why why have i ever spoken in my entire life all the time all the time nigel i agree with you gaspod seems to just be there because he's there and it's he's a plot device for sure in this book because he's helping carrot find Angua, but I did like I really found the scene with him and Carrot touching though, where Carrot falls asleep in the snow and like the wolves are surrounding him and Gaspode has this moment where he's like, maybe I could convince them that I could just like go off with them and that like you know, I'll let them kill Carrot but then he's like, no, I've never been a bad dog, like, and he and he like, gets ready to die for Carrot, defending him and I, I don't know, I found that very strangely touching (laughs) But especially because, like, with his interactions with Big Fido, he says every dog carries in it the the genesis of bad dog. But, like, him saying he's never been one, I think isn't a case of, like, making a character a saint. Because, like, Carrot isn't a saint. Right. You know, because of the fact that he's a king and has never had a cynical thought in his life. But I think Gaspode has never been a good or has never been a bad dog because he's chosen things. He's deliberately made choices that won't make him a bad dog. Like he steals, yes, but he's not capital B, capital D bad dog. Right. He's never bitten the hand that fed him. Yeah, because then you won't get any food from that. And because there's there's so much of that in and it ties back to like the the conflict between modernity and the so-called, like, perceived savage. And, like, the um, 
nature versus nurture shit where it's like, hold on now, I can't find any quotes ever because I highlighted so much in this book. So good. I love this book. I'm going to read some of them as I find them. If you tried to understand the worldview, like their worldview from a human point of view, it all went wrong. Oh, here's one. Yeah, where he's talking to Drumnot. Like, even the Thieves' Guild is lying low. Yes, my lord, I can't imagine why. When the cat's away, yes, Drumnot, but mice are happily unencumbered by apprehensions of the future. Humans, on the other hand, are, and they know that Vimes is going to be back in a week or so. Where, I don't know, there's one where it's like, like, humans can do things because they don't have to, like, just worry about killing to survive and getting their next meal. I don't know. I've lost the quotes and I've derailed this entire section. I apologize. <laughs> No, you're all right. I do love that Gaspot is the one who realizes that Carrot allowed himself to get into trouble because he knew that Angoa would hear it through the howl and would come back for him. Gaspot was like, all right, I know what you're doing here. Yeah, but also, like, Angua knows that Carrot is coming after her because of the howl, where, and, like, Sybil knows that Vimes is coming after her because of the, the shout. I never made that parallel. That's absolutely right. I didn't think about that. Aha! We're good at our job at analyzing books. We have more Igors! We find out that the Igors are a family of Igors. I'd like it if there were a, if there were a guild of Igors. I think that would be very funny. Like, for all intents and purposes, it is. I love it because, like, they're all called Igor. They're all called Igor, and it's like you slowly learn which one they're talking about when they're like, you know, it's like, I give you a package to give to Igor, and it's like, is this Igor who works by the gate? And it's like, yes, I already said that. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, Vimes slowly begins to understand that from, like, interacting with and empathizing with them. And, like, the young Igor that they meet at the end. <laughs> who calls no man monster? Yeah. <laughs> what do, how do you feel about that young Igor now being a permanent part of the Watch? He's their doctor. He's their doctor. I love that. Uh, I love that for him, because, like, on the one hand, like, Igor's function only to serve. Like, that's what they're made for and make themselves for. But, like, it's interesting for a character who can, like, genetically modify themselves and, like, is capable of, like, bio-enhancement if they want to make right. something of themselves in, like... This this young Igor has made something of himself in a way that, like, no other Igor has with all of their, like, stitching and sewing. Because he's gone to become a watchman. And it also means that we don't have to go to Uberwald to, like, see Igors again. So now we've come to my least favorite thread. Oh my book. god, threads! What? Yeah, it's, thread. it's fine, it's fine, it's not bad. I just, compared to the other ones, it felt very, like, trivial and unnecessary. Is... Colin's disastrous tenure as captain of the Watch. Why does he instantly become an arsehole? I hated Colin. The implication, I think, is, is that Colin is a natural sergeant, but for him, power corrupts. And I don't even have to finish the sentence because he doesn't have absolute power, but he doesn't need it. The power he gets corrupts him. Yeah, but I really hated Fred Colin in this book. Which is strange because he's one of the, like, most sympathetic Watchmen to me. The way he's kind of, like, old and past his prime, but he's still willing to, like, work because he believes in what Vimes is doing. And then, like, the minute 
he gets left in charge. He just becomes a grade-A asshole. And, like, yeah, I understand that he's a born sergeant, but... I love that he knows he's doing the wrong thing, but he can't stop. It's like he thinks that this is the right way to command, but there's this voice in the back of his mind that's like, Vimes is going to go spare. He's going to be so pissed when he comes back. This is so funny because, like, in opposition to that, Nobby forms a a workers' union to demand rights. And both of them come up against the fact that Vimes is going to hate this, and Veterinary knows this, and so he decides not to intervene, which is, like, possibly one of the funniest things, like, to ever be in a Discworld book, that, like, Veterinary is like, I don't have to deal with this problem, not because I've set up a system that obviates it, but because Vimes will sort this out because he'll be furious. (laughs) Veterinary has to get his entertainment somewhere. I get it. Like, because he he's a man who has no other vices. Oh, yeah. That is that is his vice. I love that Red Shoe helps Nobby form the union. <laughs> he's because used to it. experience, yeah. Yet more examples of um, solidarity, where it's like, I think every job should be part of a union, and I think employers should allow their uh, workers to form a union. Yeah. I'm talking about the company I, I worked for, as well as Amazon. We were not part of a union. We couldn't go on strike even if we wanted to. It's almost like they're implying that unions run Ankh-Morpork, right? Like the guilds are like a union. They look out after the interests of the workers in that specific field. Yeah, and the people affected by it. And I don't know if I had tied those things so closely together in my mind before this book. Because it's called the Guild of Watchmen, right? Like he puts in the paperwork to start a new guild. And so it is almost like Ankh-Morpork is an exercise in what if unions ran a city. Yeah, because like Veninari doesn't rule the city. for all, Like he oversees it. He's the leader. But like one, he doesn't like doing it. and But he realizes that someone needs to be in charge. But two, he's created a system where the people have as much power as they like as they can hold without becoming like fred and like being corrupted because yeah there's people like lord downey who are like you know scheming and stuff but or lord rust or lord yeah exactly they're scheming but they're not like corrupt in their leadership or not, not sorry not corrupt because of their leadership right like Veterinary seems to be, uh, like, the Joycean idea of, like, a creator figure. Like, Portrait of the Artist, as a young man, Joyce says that, like, he believes that, crea- like, the creator is just, like, sitting back benevolently, paring his fingernails, watching it. That he just has no active part in his creation. Veterinary yes. set this up and was like, like, his mind is all clockwork and steel. And so he just set, he just wound up all of his toys and then let them go. And he just makes sure that they stay that way. That seems to be his thing is maintenance. Yeah, he's not so much a dictator as he is like a handyman, I think. (laughs) I like that comparison. I think he would like that comparison. Yeah, like Vimes is an effective tool. But Mm -hmm. like, like he refers to Vimes as a tool, but I don't think it's in a like manipulative way. Like a like, right. He's a tool to help us achieve our ends. He's like quite literally a tool used for maintenance. All right, let's 
transition to the end of the episode, we have three death sightings in this book. The first two occur when Vimes is on the run during the game. Death shows up. And we get introduced to this new idea that death now shows up when you might die because of the trousers of time concept that has been introduced to us in previous books. This is so funny because he's essentially like pulling pranks on Vimes. Yes. He's like, why is he running away from me? But yeah, I think this is part of like the more important, larger thing of like quantum and particle physics coming to the disc world. That like now there is uncertainty. Like we've we've had that thought experiment of Schrodinger's cat, or like the equivalent. We've had the Heisenberg's uncertainty principle moment where we're like we don't actually know where we are in the grand scheme of things. And death is like, well, if you don't know where you are, then you don't know when you'll die, really. Like, and I don't know that then. Yeah, because the idea is that in some universe you did die, right? Death doesn't explain it very well because he says it's difficult to explain, but the idea is is that he did show up for Vimes' death because in some universe, Vimes died. I also liked when Vimes asked him for help and Death says, oh yeah, I will definitely help you. And Vimes is like, when? And he's like, when the pain becomes too much. And he's like, I, I understand that's not the answer you were looking for. <laughs> like, it's very dark, but that is, Death feels like he's helping in some of those situations. And that feels like another thing, which is, like, a a conversation on euthanasia. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Like, that that's something that Death sees himself as helping. We already talked about the other one where Death shows up for for Gaspode. Well, no, he shows up for Gavin, but he talks to Gaspode and says, like, it's not your time yet. Which I thought, this is the second interaction between Gaspode and Death, remember? Because they interacted in moving pictures as well. Yeah, I like Death interacting with dogs because he's not a dog person. I mean, he's not a person either. I forgot about Scraps. Yeah, there's definitely some... some And Big Fido. He comes for Big Fido, too. Yeah, that is interesting. I hadn't thought about that. The first footnote is on the very first page of the novel. They say that elephants, being such huge beasts, have bones of rock and iron and nerves of gold for better conductivity over long distances. Footnote. Not rock and iron in their dead form, as they are now, but living rock and iron. The dwarves have quite an inventive mythology about minerals. It might actually be my favorite footnote of the book, because the idea of like rock and iron and gold is having a living form, and Mm. we're just mining the dead form of it, it's... It's so evocative. Like, I don't know what it would look like in its living form, but, like, I have, like, all these images that come to mind just from that description. What was your favorite footnote? I don't know. Like, part of me really enjoyed, like, the Marquis de Fontaire footnote. But, no, my favorite one is the the one about the Ephibian idea of democracy. Yes, I forgot about that one. Uh, Which is also a double footnote one, so I'll just include it in my reading. Vimes had once discussed the Ephibian idea of democracy with Carrot and had been rather interested in the idea that everyone, apart from women, children, slaves, idiots, and people who weren't really our kind of people, had a vote until he found out that while he, Vimes, would have a vote, there was no way in the rule there was no way in the rules that anyone could prevent knobby knobs from having one as well. Vimes could see the flaw there straight away. Yes. No, that is that is probably my other favorite footnote. That's a good one. They could see the problem straight away. 
I don't know. Should Nobby have a vote? I think Nobby should have a vote. I think I can see how democracy would actually appeal to Vimes, though. Hmm. As a concept, even though he doesn't know very much about it. What was the funniest moment in the book for you? What made you laugh out loud? I don't know why. This is, like, just funny. I, I mean, obviously the bit about Veninari stepping back because he knows Vimes is going to come back is really funny. But I don't know why. This is such a, a ludicrous thing. It's an interaction between Vimes and Inigo. And so it's like, I was just thinking that I could take to the diplomatic life, said Vimes. There is something else, said Inigo, getting into the coach. There's some historical artifact owned by the dwarves, and there's a rumor. How long ago was the scone of stone stolen? Inigo's mouth stayed open. Then he shut his mouth and his eyes narrowed. How in the world did you know that, your grace, hmm? By the pricking of my thumbs, said Vimes, his face carefully blank. I've got very odd thumbs when it comes to pricking. It's just, <laughs> it's such a ludicrous sentence. I love that. My other one, my funniest one, is also an interaction between Vimes and Inigo. Oh, they're so good. They should get a buddy cop show. Uh, or the, I mean, that's, I think, the saddest part about Inigo dying is that I would have loved to see a book where, like, Inigo was one of his sources. Like, not a watchman, but, like, somebody, like a, like a CI or something like that. Like, somebody who... Like a man on the inside. Yeah, exactly. Something like a, like something that he and Vimes would have to do together. I don't know. This could have been a really good book, I think. Anyway, he's talking to Inigo. I'm an excellency, said Vimes to Inigo. Yes, your grace. And still am I grace as well. Yes, your grace. You are his grace, his excellency, the Duke of Ankh, Commander Sir Samuel Vimes, your grace. Hang on, hang on. His grace cancels out the sir. I know that. It's like having an ace in poker. Strictly speaking, this is true, your grace, but a great store is set by titles here, and it's best to play with a full deck. Mm. I was once blackboard monitor at school, said Vimes sharply, for a whole term. Would that help? Dame Venting said no one could clean a blackboard like me. A useful fact, your grace, which may possibly be of helpful in the event of a tiebreak. First of all, I think it's very funny. I know that Vimes is being sarcastic. Like, uh, I was a blackboard monitor for a whole term. That's a title. But it gets funnier every time it gets brought up in the book, especially when the Low King starts referring to him as your monitorship. Yeah. <laughs> and then, like, there's that discussion with the dwarves, and Dee explains it as someone who wipes away the words when they're no longer needed, which is, like, one of the best descriptions of, like, wiping a blackboard mm. i've ever heard it's a it's a great title can i like can i like make that deep yes please well i think i think it's like fundamental to who vimes is i mean obviously like monitor means the same as watch so like even from the early age he's been like a watchman but also like have we actually this is a question now i want to ask do we ever like have we had so far Vimes say the like there was an actual reason why he decided to join the watch he talked about how before he was a watchman like when he was a teenager that he was involved in criminal activity like he he mm. like was part of like a gang or like gangs but he I don't know if it gives us a, spe a specific reason but I think he indicated that basically it became like, well, this is a job I can do, and, like, it's the only one that I seem like I could be good at, and it, like, got him out of trouble. Like, the idea that, like, he would... I think he even says I would have died if I hadn't gotten into the watch. Right, I couldn't remember that. But, yeah, the whole... I don't remember the exact wording, but I, that's what I remember. They wipe away the words when they're no longer needed. It's like, well, like, I mean, we think about the way people talked about, like trolls or dwarves or certain like the way that like prejudice works and learning to like accept that 
even in Vimes' self, he's learning to wipe away the words he had for, like, minorities. And he's trying to do that with the undead and vampires, too. He's trying to wipe away words that are no longer needed. And even, like, in terms of trauma, like, obviously, I'm, this is not, like, like, trauma never goes away. Uh, in the same way that, like, medication and therapy never gets rid of something that someone is suffering from. But it, like, helps clear away the language and, like, thought processes that, like, serve to, uh, like, define the way you act. So, like, Vimes is learning to live with it by, like, getting rid of the guilt and the, like, shame he feels from his upbringing. Well, and erasing the words, you can take this broader into the book and say, like, they're all, they're erasing the words that defined them and making new words, right? Yeah. Yeah, I like that a lot. It also gives us a glimpse into Vimes as a school child. Like, was he a teacher's pet? I find that hard to believe, but it seems like that's what it's hinting at. Clearly his teacher liked him, or he was responsible in Which some way. Which is weird, because he seems to hate authority figures. I feel like he, he became captain of the watch because it meant he didn't have an authority figure over him. What's something that made you think in this book? It's the Vimes line... Where he says, like, uh, it's about D, where she committed a small crime, but in her head she had set out to commit a big crime, and in his book he thought that should count. We get this big crimes thread again. This came from Jingo, too. Yeah, but then also, like, it says slightly before that, that, um, like, it, at the end of the day when it all comes down to it, Vimes was a little picture man. Like, he couldn't care less about diplomatic crimes or like going to war against the Clatchians that like his real care is for people on the streets yeah but like people who set out to do big crimes even if it doesn't follow through like like they had the intention of causing much more hurt and I think that like you can even see this when like people are punished with like lesser sentences than what they they did like where they get off with like a fine for you know that quote where it's like like it's a crime where like rich people get a fine and, and like poor people get put in prison for the same thing and this is something that bothers vimes we know this from other books too the idea that rich people can just do things and it gets swept under the rug like dragging king of king of arms doesn't get punished the way vimes thinks that he should get punished rust doesn't get punished the way that vimes thinks he should be punished like, it would have caused so much harm to the dwarves, like, by electing someone who wasn't Reese. Well, it would have been either war, right, because the Scone of Stone was missing, or it would have been that that Reese would have had to step down and Albrecht Albrechtson would have become the Low King, and he's, like, a conservative asshole. Yeah, no, that's what I mean. Like, even if it's not Albrecht Albrechtson, I think, like, Anyone other than Reese, it would, yeah, like, it would have been so much worse for the people who are just going about their daily lives. And I think he understands that because of his interactions with Cherry. That, like, he can understand now. And he, like, I think this is confirmed by D. That, like, like, he understands that this is a struggle. And even, like, D would have done irreparable harm, even though. As it turns out, all of the uh, scones of stone are fake. Because if there's one thing Ankh Morpork is good at making, 
it's like copies of things from other cultures. <laughs> that has to be like the best revelation. Well, and I like that the, uh, Reese is basically like, it doesn't matter that they're all fake. Like they're real because people think that they're real. That's what matters. It doesn't really matter that it's the same one. Also, we have another ship of Theseus in this. Yes, the axe. Mm. Which he gives Fimes an axe at the end to remind him of this. I also have to say, just as a side note and aside to this Gone of Stone, I love that basically romance and love is the basis of dwarf law. This romance between Iron Hammer and Blood Axe. And while I was made very uncomfortable by Vimes basically asking which one is the dude and which one is the girl, I have to say that I kind of want them to be gay dwarves. Like like Iron Hammer and Blood Axe, the, the founders of the modern dwarfish lore, are just like, it's a romantic pairing between between gay dwarves. But also like, I will say, I think Vimes asking which is the dude and which is the girl in this is, is important to the fact that, like, we don't know. And that's the whole point, because so many of the dwarves are performing masculinity, because that's what culture right. expects of them. That I think, I don't know, this feels like a tell early on. Like, especially when Reese says there might be need for the use of Angua's dressmakers. Maybe it's not for Reese, but it could be for other people, like o- other dwarves that like, we we just don't know. It may be gay dwarves. It may be straight dwarves. It may be like T for T dwarves. We don't, we don't know. I mean, it doesn't matter. Like ultimately it really doesn't. I just have yeah. this like cute little like, oh, like a ro- a gay romance is the basis of all dwarvish law, you know? Oh a yeah, no, no. Romance. I- I'm just saying I was, like, at the end of the book, I was less leery of Vimes continually asking that because I felt like it was thematically important. I Yeah, I fully agree with you. Gay romance. Gay romance. I think everything should be queer. Have I ever told you about when I was writing fanfic and I was having so much trouble writing this guy? And I was like, what's wrong? Why do I always dread writing this guy? And I was like, oh, because subconsciously I'm writing him as straight. And then my brain yeah. was like... I was like, oh, he's a queer man, and it was so much easier to write him. (laughs) The thing that made me think is actually a scene we haven't talked about yet, but it's the scene where they arrive at the embassy, and they see all the trophies on the wall, and they see that one of them is a troll, and they talk to Detritus about it. This scene is so good that I'm actually just going to read it. The troll looked up at them, then at the trophies, and then grinned. It's colder up here, Vimes thought. He's quicker on the uptake. Even Nobby won't play poker with him in the winter. Damn. Something wrong, said Detritus. Vimes sighed. What was the point? He'd spot it sooner or later. I'm sorry about this, Detritus, he said, standing aside. Detritus looked at the horrible trophy and nodded. Yeah, there used to be a lot of that sort of thing in their old days, he said calmly, putting down the luggage. They wouldn't be real diamond teeth, of course. They'd take them out and put bigger glass ones in. You don't mind, said Lady Sybil. It's a troll's head. Someone actually mounted a troll's head and put it on the wall. Ain't mine, said Detritus, but it's so horrible. Detritus stood in thought for a moment and then opened the stained wooden box that contained all he had felt it necessary to bring. This is their old country, after all, he said, so if it'd make you feel better. He pulled out a smaller box and rummaged among what appeared to be bits of rock and cloth until he found something yellowy, brown, and round, like a shallow cup. 
Should have bunged it away, he said, but it's all I've got to remember my old granny by. She kept things in it. It's a bit of human skull, isn't it? Said Vimes at last. Yep. Whose? Did anyone ask that troll his name? Said Detritus, and the glint in his voice had a brittle edge to it for a moment. Then he carefully put the bull away. Things were different in them days. Now you don't chop our heads off and we don't make drums out of your skin. Everything is hunky-dory. That's all we have to know. That is such a like poignant scene between... I mean, it's probably the most poignant scene we've ever seen with Detritus outside of the scene with him and Cuddy in the, the Pork Futures locker. Yeah, I will say as well, the, the moment when they realize like Cuddy is dead and they break the news to Detritus and he says that he's going to go out and find the person who did it. Yeah, that's also just, like, that really gets me. But I think, yeah, that is an important thing because there's so many stories about, like, I, I'm, I've forgotten a few of the details and I haven't, like, researched this because, like, like, I'm only thinking of it now. But there's, like, stories of people from indigenous cultures who, like, have had their relatives' bones taken and displayed in a museum. Uh, and then when they try to get them back, they get bones back, which, like, on later examination, aren't even their ancestors' bones. You know, so much of indigenous culture, and not even things like the Elgin marbles being stolen from the Parthenon and displayed in the British Museum. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's like, you know, like actual people's human remains that have right. just been turned into curios. And like, yeah, that's past it, past us, but like, there's been no reparations paid. And this is another, like, I think this is another small thing where, like, the watch books are showing us an idealized version of, like, how political structures and the police can work and it should yeah. work. And I like that you bring up the indigenous aspect or, or even, like, people of color aspect of it because I feel like part of this also is is that they're expecting him to be more upset than he is and it's upsetting it clearly is because of that comment he makes about you know did anyone ask his name but also like people of color aren't surprised by this right yeah. this has happened to them it's not a secret it only surprises white people when they find out about it and yeah so, like when white people that, hear about what they did in tuskegee yeah exactly but black people already know about it and so like it I think illustrates how something can be upsetting and tiring, but Detritus is able to say like, yeah, but I already knew about this. Like I already knew that they did this. Right. And like, it, it's such an interesting examination of like that weariness, but like that complete lack of shock at the same time. Yeah. And I appreciate that Vimes, when he has Igor take the trophies down, he says, ask Detritus about the troll. Like, does he need to be buried? Is there anything we need to do? Like, racism and colonial atrocities are only ever shocking to the, like, group who actually did it. Because we don't teach our our children about it. We tend to say, oh, well, we need to protect the children from knowledge of these horrible things, forgetting that nobody is protecting the children of people of color from knowing about these things. They have to know about these things in order to survive. Like, it's, it's, a, pri it's a privilege for a white child to not have to be taught about these things. Yeah, can I talk about the Queen again? Yes. So, But, like, the, this is not just me being like, the Queen is dead, uh, as, like, a, as an Irish person, you know, like, who had 800 years of colonial subjugation, which is, like, not, a, like, not as bad as, like, let's say, uh, like, people in India experienced, um, you know, like, especially with the division 
uh, of the partition of India and Pakistan. Like, that's not what I'm trying to compare. But so many people in England are trying to be like, oh, why are you so upset about colonialism when, like, the Queen actively saw, like, like, the move towards decolonization and now we're all decolonized and everything is happy. Like, there's so many stories of, like, people of colour in Africa seeing their family members get shot by British troops, you know? Uh, because they wanted something from... Like, the Queen was on the throne, like, 40 years or whatever. 30, 40 years, while there was still, like, atrocities being committed in the north of Ireland. You know? Like, that's one example that's close to home. But, like, like, the partition that happened between India and Pakistan happened less than a hundred years ago. Like, yeah, we never think about how soon this was, like how recent it was. Yeah. Like it's one human lifetime ago. Like, that's the thing. It's not, it's not that long ago. There are people alive. There are people who remember. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, that's the thing that like shocks me the most is that people like, on this, like, on the colonizers or racist side, but in this case, colonizers, is that, like, they're so willing to, like, distance themselves from it by saying, oh, it was so long ago, we don't do that now. But, like, forgetting that there was so much in between then and now that happened. And that, mm-hmm. like, we don't, we don't forget. Not Not to spend all of this time talking about England from an Irish perspective, but, like, the six counties are still in the north. Right. Uh, which is a, which is a result of, like, land originally given in the Ulster Plantation hundreds of years ago, that, like, then got given to the English only, like, a hundred years ago. But, like, that's a thing that was, like, over, like, hundreds of years. I don't know. Like, Obviously, I can't. I can't speak greatly to the experience of like people of color, because I'm not a person of color, and my culture didn't experience that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good reminder, though, because I often think about it from like an American perspective. But I mean, like you said, there are countries that are white that experience the same thing, like Ireland and and Scotland and Wales. So it it makes sense that even in a, an American context, like Hawaii. Like, like oh, look at what Hawaii, happened to Hawaii. Yeah, Puerto Rico, Guam, the Philippines, like all of that stuff. It's the same thing. I mean, it's not just slavery, although that's obviously a huge part of it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. On that note, we keep ending these on like really downer notes. I'm sorry. The next episode <laughs> will end with cake and flowers. All right. Next episode. The industrial revolution of the Discworld continues as the first oh. newspaper on the disc causes an uproar in Ankh-Morpork in The Truth. Ooh. Yeah, first newspaper. We're going to do journalism. Ugh, why? <laughs> Where can people find you online and on their headphones, Nigel? Well, they can listen to my shows, Hyperfixations and Archive Admirers and such. Whenever... Um, Wherever you find podcasts, I, I would recommend listening to Hyperfixations. We've been doing a lot of like quality programming recently. I think lots of great guests on Hyperfixations lately. Thank you. Do you have a particular favorite? Oh man, I can't. Why would you ask me that? 
I, it was just, sorry, I, I, I don't go and check it. I just thought you <laughs> oh, might have. No, I, I want to look now. Hold on. I, I did not type in the wrong, the right thing. I really liked the Daniel Handler, Handler one with the Hammer Horror films. Yeah, like, that was, was so, so good. There was so much about that. That was so good. I love Hammer Horror, so that was a really good one, mm. too. Hearing him yeah, talk no. about writing as well. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I, kudos to you. That was a great... You are like, I bow before your podcast guest skills. That was amazing. Thank you. Sorry, this was not an exercise in self-vanity. <laughs> I love hyperfixations. It's one of the reasons that we even have this podcast. So, I, I mean, that and Monkey yeah. Off My Backlog. It's like they got together and had a baby, and the baby was Nanny Ogg's Book Club. Yeah. And then you can mainly find me on Twitter, at Spicy Nigel. We hit a big milestone in the countdown to Avatar 2. We're in double digits now. Woo! It is currently 97 days until Avatar 2 comes out. Recently, I've been tweeting, uh, I've been tweeting about transphobia in Ireland, but with the Enoch Burke case and also John Boyne, the author who is, uh, a transphobe. He was saying that young Irish writers today are all writing the same book. It offends nobody. And then I said, if John Boyne had his way, everybody would write a book grossly misrepresenting the Holocaust, refuse to listen when called out by the Auschwitz Museum, be a transphobe, then stick a Legend of Zelda crafting recipe in their under-researched book. Let people write what that they want. That was that guy? Yeah, that was so funny. He just googled, like, red dye crafting recipe, saw one of the top results, which is just The Legend of Zelda, and went, I will question this no further. That's amazing. I knew about that, but I didn't know who it was. That's amazing. Yeah, and then I'm beginning to wonder what sort of cult uh, your wife and Lozzie and I think Elise also is in. Who is this Madison person in She-Hulk? And She's why do we amazing. care? She's amazing. I love her so much. I'm also part of the Madison cult. What is this? She's a minor character from the most recent episode of She-Hulk who... Becomes best friends with Wong, but she's clearly like a party girl from Fort Lauderdale. She's great. I love her. You can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. You can also find me on my aforementioned other podcast, Monkey Off My Backlog. We recently released three episodes, a three-part episode on the Hugo Awards where our friend Lazie and my partner Sam and I ran down a lot of the most recent science fiction that was nominated for the Hugo Awards. As of this episode coming out, uh, we also just released an episode of Elise Assigns, where our friend Ooh. Elise assigned us to watch three of her favorite movies. So that just came out. I'm very excited about it. I'm excited to listen to that one. It's, it's a good one. You can find that podcast on Twitter at Monkey Backlog. You can find this podcast on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Ox Book Club. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Read us out, Nigel. They're all good lads, said Carrot softly. I'm sure if the two of you call on each and every one of them and explain the situation, they will see where their duty lies. Tell them, Tell them there's always an easy way if you know where to look. And then we can get on with our jobs, and when Mr. Vimes returns from his well-earned holiday, the somewhat confused events of the past will merely be... Confusing? Suggested Nobby, hopefully. Exactly, said Carrot. But I'm glad to see you made so much headway with the paperwork, Fred. Colin stood nailed to the spot until Nobby, saluting desperately with the other hand, dragged him out of the office. Angua could hear them arguing all the way down the stairs. 
Carrot stood up, dusted off the chair, and placed it carefully under the desk. Well, we're home, he said. Yes, said Angua, and she thought, you do know how to do nasty, don't you? But you use it like a claw. It slides out when you need it, and then when you don't, there's no sign that it's there. He reached over and took her hand. Wolves never look back, he whispered. The end.